Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Pace car has left the track and a quick start for the defending champ, Marcus Erickson. Joseph Newgarden, five car lengths behind. He saw the green flag and he flat got on it, did Erickson. But here comes Joseph Newgarden in turn number one. Erickson weaving back and forth like he did a year ago to try to protect that lead. He'll do it in turn number one. Erickson, Newgarden, and Ferrucci. Marcus Erickson trying to win back-to-back Indianapolis 500s, but here comes Joseph Newgarden. He's closed in on that rear wing. He has an amazing run down that back straightaway. Erickson goes behind the white line, and it's Joseph Newgarden swinging to the outside for the final time. Joseph Newgarden has taken the lead of the Indianapolis 500 with just two turns to go. Marcus Erickson on his heels. Newgarden into turn number four. Erickson looks to the inside, looks to the outside. Newgarden has a two-car length lead. Advance Auto Park, twin checkered flag in the air. It's a battle at the start-finish line, and Joseph Newgarden will win the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Finally, finally, I'm so... I think I've cried out. The emotion's gone. I had it. I had a ton of emotion there for a little bit, but I'm just thankful to the team that we finally got this done. You know, I, I, I was trying to put it off that, you know, it's not going to define a career winning a race here, but, but everyone seems to want to make it a defining moment. And so for me, you know, it's impossible to not look at it that way. And, and I'm elated to finally get it to work out. You know, it's, it's, this is way more than me. This is the entire team. They built an amazing car. The crew, Tim, calling an amazing strategy. RP for sticking with us, giving us the faith. So I, I you know, I can't speak enough about the team effort because that's what it takes. Oh, I mean, P2, it was where we needed to be. If it was gonna, if it was gonna restart. I think that's the position you wanted. And you know, thankfully, uh, we had a fast car. You know, this shell car was unbelievable with our partners and this team that put it together. So we we had exactly what we needed today. The 12th try is the charm for Joseph Newgarden. He wins the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500 in dramatic fashion, tying Sam Hanks for the most starts for a first-time champion, also a record-extending 19th Indy 500 win for Roger Penske's group over there at Team Penske. And we roll with you here on a Tuesday on the Fan Midday Show with James Boyd. I am Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison with us as well. Hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. As we dive right in to... Our recap show here on a Tuesday is most of us outside of tip of the cap to Kevin and query yesterday who had Joseph Newgarden on the show who recapped the race splendidly and we'll do that throughout today as well. Mark Jane's going to join us at the bottom of the hour, but James and I'll bring Eddie in here as well as Eddie was was at the race and, and got to experience it in person in full force. We'll start with the little bit of controversy with how this race ended <laughs> number of red flags. And after the last caution that led to that final red flag, there was debate. And if you go back and watch the replay, they mentioned this on the radio broadcast as well. They did on the television broadcast that was there actually going to be one more red that would then lead to a green to close things out on the final lap. That is ultimately the decision that was made at IMS. And it leads us to a one lap shootout to decide who's going to win the 107th running at the Indianapolis 500. Erickson did his best, but could not Hold off, Joseph Newgarden. I was very happy that that's the decision that they made, even though I do feel bad for Marcus Erickson because 
it effectively is a one lap sprint to decide who wins that race. But even though it doesn't happen very often, I've had such a bitter taste in my mouth over the instances where it has happened, where things end on a caution. I want high level drama. I want high level entertainment. We got it throughout the entirety of that race, but it delivered with an exclamation point with green flag racing on the final lap. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I thought that it was what you sign up for if you're a fan there, if you're a spectator, if you're someone who's invested in the sport. Obviously, if you're you know, Team Erickson, you're rooting for him. You're like, wait a second here. This is not right. This isn't fair. But I thought that um, the ending was something that will grab your attention, obviously. And the excitement from Joseph was pretty cool to see because he really seemed to just embrace the moment and relish how cool it is. I mean, we see that with a lot of drivers, but it's not always as outward as it was for him. And so you saw the emotion, you saw the excitement, you saw maybe like that little kid in him kind of come out where he's trying to go into the crowd and, and, and hang out with the fans and share that moment with them. So it was a fantastic race. Obviously at the end, I um, had some things happen throughout the race. I was, you know, pretty crazy. We'll talk about that as well, but the ending I thought was uh, pretty special and just something that people are going to remember. Eddie, as our of the three of us resident gentleman who was at <laughs> the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500, mm-hmm. you don't disagree with me in the fact that it didn't end on a caution. We were happy about that. But the level of, I don't want to say unprecedented nature, but the level of rarity of ending with a green flag without a caution in between or an extra lap to have that caution in between rubbed you the wrong way a little bit, no? Uh, yeah, I did the, just a little bit, not a whole lot. Like, I like to see it under in under green, but to me, them not even getting a warm-up lap, I think is a little bit different. That's because, fair. That's fair. Like, Marcus Erickson headed at it like it's very dangerous for these guys to be, you know, sitting in pit lane. The car cools down, the tires cool down. Next thing you know, you're asked to go back out there and you don't get a warm up lap to get those tires warm. Next thing you know, you're going 220, 230 miles an hour, and there's a realistic shot. Somebody could lose control of the car because the tires aren't warm and there's not enough grip on them to sustain. 220, 23 miles per hour through four corners, but thankfully nobody was hurt. And then the other part of it, too, that Erickson hit on, I can't remember if this was on radio or on TV, but when you do it like the way it is, half the field is still coming off pit lane as the green flag is being waved. So the, it, when you look at it from the backfield perspective of this, too, there doesn't allow a lot of room of drivers to be able to get up to speed quickly and make passes. Because, I mean, let's face it, the, the higher up these guys finish, and and lady, but she wasn't able to finish the race in Catherine Leg. But the higher up they finish, the more money they get. And at the end of the day, that's what these guys are trying to accomplish is get as much money as they can for those sponsors, finish as high up as they can in the Indianapolis 500. Here was my day of events. So cards on the table, and Eddie mocked me a bit, which is fair, right? Like I, I bet six drivers in total going in of 33. <laughs> now, a lot of the reason I did that is I just wanted to make a profit of some kind. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to place 33 bets, and look, I have a winner. <laughs> it was, okay, I want to pick six because the odds are juiced, and hopefully we have a profit one or the other. Total profit for me, end of the weekend with Indy 500 was $20. And the reason it was $20 is because I finally decided to take the route of, you know what, most of the drivers I have right now doesn't feel like they have a chance to win. New Garden's got some nice juice. We'll put 15 on that fella, and we're either going to lose 55 bucks on the weekend, or we're going to have a nice profit. That's the way I looked at it. So while I did have a winner, took me seven tries to find it, my one super long shot that I knew wasn't going to hit in Stingray Rob goes out. One of the first drivers to get knocked out. I'm devastated. I'm still recovering from that. Because, first off, 
probably one of the best names in all of sport. And secondly, it was a plus 20,000 shot that would have paid a thousand had it hit. Again, we joked about it on a carb day. It had no shot of happening. Rookies very, very rarely win this race. And you could tell throughout Qualls, Stinger Rob probably didn't have the car to do it. But okay, so that's where my mind is. I'm recovering from that. And then I look down and I'm walking around and we have the radio on. And then all of a sudden I hear there's another crash. I'm like, oh no, what happened here? And Alex Pillow is rammed into inadvertently in the pits. And I think his day is done. His day was effectively done, even though credit to him and how fast that car was. He kept climbing up. He did not DNF. He, he finished fourth. He finished the race, finished fourth. But you could just tell from the way that Mark Jays and company were referring to the accident as it happened. His day was likely done. Give credit to his car. Give credit to his team that he was able to climb back up and finish fourth. But so that was where I was at. From, from the race perspective of, man, just uh, apparently I shouldn't pick people and uh, they'll be fine. They're not going to crash that way. So that was my race experience. <laughs> a lot of emotions. <laughs> uh, and then, again, we're down to the wire where it's like, okay, one of the guys I'd picked was Ferrucci. Looked like he was going to flirt with it. AJ Foot Racing might might finally be back after it seemed like to start the year. So much questions with who was going to be the real workhorse for them. And then Ferrucci over the last month to two months has really been that guy. He comes really close, and then it's obviously a two-car race at the end. So while I was happy for Joseph Newgarden because he was the only live bet that I placed yesterday, (laughs) you know how rare and tough it is to win the Indianapolis 500. Tony Kanaan mentioned this last night on WTHR for the post-race gala that they have regarding him having his 1500 and, well, yeah, it would have been nice to maybe win another one, there's solace at the end of the day when you look over and you see a Borg Warner in your trophy case, even if it's only one. So Marcus Erickson, who knows? Who knows if he'll ever get another opportunity? He's a he's a, one of the best drivers in the circuit right now. So like I'm not saying that blindly, like that eh, he might never win another one because he's always competitive, but it stings. And I do feel for him. That being said, we finished in the money. So I mean, what are you, you going to do? <laughs> Way to go, New Garden. <laughs> I mean, what'd you think of, you know, Joseph, you know, going out there, like I said, you know, jumping on the fence, oh doing the Helio, Helio uh, Elio, I'm sorry, uh, Castro Neves kind of celebration where he's like, I thought he it. was going to scale it. I, I thought when he's running <laughs> up there, I was like, okay, he's going to do a nod to Elio and he's going to pull out his Spider-Man. He's going to climb the fence. And then when he hops through and it is, you know, celebrating with the people, I was like, oh my goodness, this is great. Like, because it's just spur of the moment full of adrenaline, like you finally achieved something that, like other drivers within IndyCar, you look at a couple resumes, you're like, yeah, they're missing a 500. They need a 500. That is what's followed Joseph Newgarden for his entire career, despite the dominance that he's had, Mm -hmm. winning a couple of series titles and, and, and just being as dominant as he has been. So it's very fitting, right? It's very poetic for him to get the opportunity to do it and to demonstrate himself as a man of the people. You know that all those fans that are around there right by the you know, the opening of the fence, just like everybody at the Speedway, have been grinding it out for like, from race time, by the way. I'm not talking about when they started their day. Four, four and a half hours at the Speedway, enjoying themselves, cooking in the sun a little bit, even though from a, from a weather standpoint, compared to race in the past, not a scorcher by any means, but still, you're hot, you're in the sun, like it, it's part of the elements. 
to have that little extra cherry on top of celebrating with the Indy 500 winner, that was special. So, and, and credit to him for doing it. So here's what he said. Uh, this is per ESPN. He said, I started out as a fan in the crowd, and this place is amazing, regardless of where you're sitting. Everyone kept asking me why I hadn't won this race, and they look at you like you're a failure if you haven't won it. I knew I was capable. I knew I could. And so that has to feel amazing to have that relief come off of his back and to just feel like, you know, that moment. I'm sure he probably had it even more when, when like, the noise and stuff goes away. You're probably sitting in your hotel room or whatever, and you're like, I just did something that I dreamed of as mm-hmm. a kid. Like, how many of us can say that in any field? Well, I did what I dreamed to do. I mean, I'm sure there's many uh, young kids in Indy right now who dream of winning an Indy 500. And if you're like me, grew up playing basketball, you, up, you dream of playing in the finals like Reggie Miller and things like that. Yeah. And f- to actually do it, you know, all those years later, that, that has to be really special. And so, like I said, I enjoyed seeing the joy from him and just how much he soaked it in. And I think it's very rare, too, where you see athletes interact with fans like that on the biggest stage. That rarely ever happens. You're not going to see, you know, got the NBA Finals coming up. You're not going to see any NBA players jump in the stands and, you know, celebrate with the fans like he just did. You're not going to see that in baseball and things like that. It just doesn't really happen. Closest you'll get is hop on the scoreboard, like – Get exactly hyped after a game winner or something like that. But yeah, you don't often see a straight dive <laughs> into uh, Section 102, right? It just doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, special stuff. And like I said, um, I enjoyed seeing just how much it meant and reading so much about it over the weekend, just different experiences people had. I even looked through Andy Star gallery of tattoos that people were showing off at the race. <laughs> and I feel like it's not even like on purpose. You just, it's hot. You got your sleeve of shirts on and you see a, a lot of art that way too. So, um, like I said, it was a really cool event to just see from afar. I'm hoping to get there soon. That's a family obligation. I'm sorry, people. I guess family comes first, but uh, I'm excited to hopefully get out there next year just to see how it goes. Cause I mean, man, that is, they had everything in that race. Um, and I think that that's what you want to see you got the excitement you got the drama you got the history you got you know the monkey off your back if you're joseph newgarden and um yeah that was uh pretty special credit as well and this was also said last night at the gala that was said in all the post-race press conferences too but ims and IndyCar car medical and the way the technology in general with the safety of these cars has come even you know over the last decade last 15 years for the viciousness of some of those crashes, at least visually, particularly Kyle Kirkwood's, where he's ended up, you know, basically upside down. His, you know, the, the the top of the car, the halo ring, like scraping across the ground at whatever speed that was when he crashed and somebody else to bump into him. Like the fact that he's able to walk away, be totally fine, be it last night's gala. It just speaks to how far not just the tech has come, but the efficiency and the standard, both at IMS and both on the IndyCar circuit for the safety of these drivers. 100%. I mean, if you watch that live and you know nothing about racing, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Like, is this guy okay? Like, is he alive? I mean, that's how vicious it looked. And so, like you said, to see him walk away with his health and, and, and be able to be coherent and things like that was special. And then also... Obviously, as we saw, the, the tire pop off, fly over the crowd. Very fortunate nothing happened in that regard. Mm-hmm. The only thing that really you know, caught everyone's attention was the parked Honda Civic <laughs> that got a, a very unique insurance claim, yeah, I'm that's sure. How, that's how Chap referred to it on Twitter. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that was insane. And, that, and that's really what I was thinking. I was kind of in a 
better position, I guess, because I was on Twitter and I wasn't at the race, but people who were there were genuinely asking. I saw it all up and down my timeline, like, where did that tire go? Is everyone okay? And so it was good to see reports right away, like, hey, everyone's okay. You know, the worst thing that ever that happened was another car got hit that was parked. And so, um, like I was telling you off air, I'm glad that that did not become the story of the race. Yeah. Obviously, if something tragic happens, that's what that's what it becomes. You have to cover the tragedy of it, but instead we get the chance to cover the joy, the excitement, things like that. And, um, you know, I'm sure other things will be looked at as far as safety measures, how they review those things. I don't think something like this can happen. And you just say, oh, we got lucky and we're fine. Like you probably look at some other safety measures that might get implemented in the future. But overall, it seemed like a very good experience for everyone there. And um, obviously the point of the race is to have the attention focused on the race. And that's what came out of the end. So does that mean you're not bringing a glove when you go next year? I don't think I'm catching any tires. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to catch any no. tires anytime soon, man. But like I said, very, very glad that we can even joke yeah, that, there, exactly. that things are okay right. and things right. like that. Because I was like, man, that was pretty that was pretty crazy. And even just watching it, like I'm not a huge um, you know, race watcher, things like that. So um, being a first-time yeah, first time watch for me, um, it was – scary to see that i was like wow this happens and obviously it doesn't happen very often but um that was something where again just glad that everyone's healthy safe and you got to see some uh an exciting finish there eddie i want to bring you back in one more time because with you being there whether you listen on the radio whether you caught the replay when they have that last caution there was debate about whether or not they were actually going to red flag it Mm -hmm. or whether or not they would let it end under yellow and that be the end of it. Regardless of, and we discussed that earlier, our feelings on how quickly the green came, because unlike NASCAR and a couple other racing circuits, there's no adding of laps at the 500, right? Like that, mm-hmm. like Eddie's like making a good point of, oh, they didn't have a warm up lap to get the tires ready to go get the car back up to speed because they were up against it with two laps to go. There's no adding laps at the 500. That's it. You're done. So, from your perspective, were you surprised it ended up going red? Because the way it was presented, at least when I you know, caught it on the replay as well, was a bit of surprise that they ended up going red one more time. So I think in large part, the reason why they went red at the end was because race control had no idea who was supposed to be in the lead because of the crash They'd happening that big re- yeah. right there at the main straightaway between Ed Carpenter and, um, uh, oh boy, who's the other car? Uh, I can't remember, but um, when that crash happened, they had to go through replay to figure out who was in the lead, and when that happened, and then they ran one lap, I thought, oh boy, this isn't going to finish under red. This is going to finish, or, or, or yellow, this this is going to finish under yellow, because they only had, I think, three two laps left. I'm like, there's no way you can go out there and just run one lap out of doing one lap shootout, like... That's unsafe. So I mean, I'm going to. I would expect IndyCar to make some rule changes after the season because something like that. I I don't know. I, it's just a safety hazard in my opinion. But I was a little surprised they red flagged it. And if they were going to red flag it, they should have done it a lap earlier instead of running one lap caution uh, under yellow uh, because that really that was the really sticking point to me is that. If you're going to run one lap under caution, you might as well just finish the race under yellow. Benjamin Peterson, Ed Carpenter. There it is. Inside wall in the front straight there. I couldn't remember which rookie. And then also involved in it was Marco Andretti, Graham Rahal, and Christian Lungard. So, yeah, I mean, it was... And if you're watching the replay or whether you're listening on the radio, 
you're thinking to yourself, man, like this has now happened again. And is it really going to happen one more time? And of course, everybody's jumping the gun, ready to get back out there at that point. It's a real sprint with four laps to go in theory on that restart. And sometimes it just happens. So on the one hand, and this maybe speaks to where Eddie's Sunday was and where my Sunday's was, safety popped into my brain about the tire. Safety did not pop into my head as much about the ramifications of a one-lap shootout to decide the Indy 500. I was more focused on, yes, dramatic finish. Give it to me. Into my veins. And that's what we got. But again, I don't know what it is. If I was there, and I've, I've been in the race a handful of times, if I was there, I would feel like, and this is a younger point of view, I'm sure. I'm sure there's many race purists that are very against this take which is fine. It's a generational aspect. I don't want it to end on a caution. That feels like a, in terms of all the drama and the just excitement and build up to that moment as you're going through just the the majesty of this race for it to close on a caution. So I get it. Like that's what you're forced to do. Sometimes I was not upset that it went green because we got, in my mind, the payoff, the exclamation point, the real race to the finish that's not present when you're forced to end on a caution locked in with where you are from a position standpoint. Yeah, I give Eddie a lot of credit because he's just pointing out that there has to be some nuance there, right? Sure. Like there is probably some middle ground between, you know, do you do the caution lap earlier or do you, you know, just not do it at all? Like just those things like that where you have to figure out what's the best way to give you the best viewership, but also protect the drivers from themselves. Because, I mean, I'm sure all of them know the safety hazards that are involved with, like Eddie said, just you know, starting the engine right back up and going right back out there on, on tires that aren't warm. However, if you're in that moment, it's like I, I can't think too much about that because I'm trying to win. And so you have to, as a um, sport, protect them from themselves like we see in any other sport. So something to think about going forward, I'm sure. But, um, you know, for this weekend, uh, Joseph Newgarden is pretty happy with the rules and how they turned out. I thought Erickson did a great job on the restart, though. I think he did catch Newgarden a little bit uh, asleep at the wheel, for lack of a better phrasing there, because he just, you know, he put full foot down on the throttle, went ahead by three to four, I think maybe in five car lengths, and that really made New Garden chase him down. But just being able to draft off the back of Erickson, like and when you're on cold tires, it's hard to be in the lead because, yeah, you have a lot of clean air in front of you, but the car behind you has a lot to draft off of to catch up to you. And that's ultimately what happened on every restart, out of, either out of the caution or the red flag. The leader was unable to hold on to the lead, whoever was leading coming out of the yellow. And New Garden said as much, post-race right he mentioned that with a situation like that where it's one lap to the finish p2 is where you want to be like that that's the exact spot that you prefer to be live eddie had told us before the show started that he had felt like based on what he just mentioned that when there were restarts it was always a pass happening by whoever was in second or there was a, a a aggressive play to go ahead and hop out in front so he ultimately thought that it was going to be a successful pass from New Garden. Listening to it and watching on the replay, I didn't know if he was going to catch him. Like when he when he got the start, like you mentioned, Eddie, and just how full throttle pedal to the metal that Erickson went. 
I thought it was going to be too much and he was going to be able to stave him off. So I, I at home, it was thrilling and as adrenaline rushing as you would expect as a fan when he's actually able to make that turn, even though we had seen it a number of times to that point when it was that situation presented itself. And I think he did the right thing by getting him on the back straight away because I think if he had tried to get him on turn one or even coming out of one going into turn two, I think Erickson would have caught him at the end just because you could see it there at turn four and at the later stages of turn three, especially coming down the back straightaway or the main straightaway, he was catching up to Newgarden. So if there was like an extra quarter mile, I honestly think Erickson would have been the winner. So in that spot too, Newgarden has to time the pass correctly, and I think he did. He didn't really try to pass him going into turn one, and then once he got out of that back straightaway, once Erickson went down way too low, uh, I, Newgarden was able to, I don't know if he had any push to pass left, but if he did, he used it at the right time for whatever he had left in the tank to get past him and get around him to give him enough time to secure his first 500 victory. It felt like as well, a little bit earlier in the race, and we had discussed this also before we started the show today, while it was a very gutsy move, did you think there was any other path for Pato Award to try to win that race than when he made that aggressive move to try to get around Erickson. Because for me at that point, it felt like he thinks this is his window. This is it. He's got to make that move now. And by the time you commit, there's no, there's no really bailing on it. Like it's either you make the pass or what happens happens. And he's fortunate. He also didn't take out Erickson as well. Like how, how, how Marcus Erickson got away from Pato award trying to go inside. It baffles me still today yeah i think when you look at it and i understand why pato was so heated because he felt like that erickson squeezed him down inside the the white line and then he just had i think he tried to check up and that's why he missed erickson he tried to check up a little bit to you know try to avoid spinning out like he did but in that situation i i agree i think if you're pato you got to try and get the lead because you're not you're not trying to bank on a caution to end the race like and if you have the gas to go the final distance of whatever it was the last nine ten laps there wasn't a whole lot of passing when it was green all the majority of the passing at least at the front of the field came after a yellow or just after the yellow so i like the move there by pato award because you're not trying to bank on a caution there at the end of the race if you can get the lead with nine to go go get the lead i'm always for being aggressive taking your shot i mean Hindsight is twenty twenty. You're always going to have someone say, oh, you should have did this, shouldn't have did that. But if you're in that moment, you got a chance to do something really special in literally the biggest race. I don't think you should have too many regrets about trying to call your shot and, and go for it. And even with Erickson, I mean, I thought it was smart for him to just push it and, and, and see if you can hold him off and, and see if you can, you know, uh, make your move. And I think I always give a little more credit to the guys. Well, I don't say credit, but I I, I admire it when you're able to play that cerebral game at the same time, because you're not just doing this in a simulator, you're doing this at 200, you know, plus miles per hour. And it's like, how much time do you have to think about what you're going to do and when you're going to do it? And also even for Joseph Newgarden to have the patience to not go out too fast or not try to chase him down too fast. I mean, what about that mental fortitude and what that takes and the preparation that goes into it? I mean, I just think about probably the thousands of hours or hundreds of hours, thousands of hours they put into this. And then you get to that moment where it's like, okay, you've done this probably countless times before, but can you do it when it matters most? In his case, for Joseph, it's like, how much can you tell yourself no and then yes and finally go do it? Because I mean, 
that's got to be one of the hardest decisions because, again, what, whatever you do, and obviously for him he won, but if you don't, you're going to look back and be like, okay, I should have went here or I should have did this, you know, at this uh, second instead of this second. So um, that's always the part that's super fascinating to me is beyond just the athletic ability is just the intelligence and just the mental fortitude to do what you said you were going to do if you were in this position. Is there anything for you, James, as you mentioned, you're hoping to make your first Indy 500 appearance before we close things here that you you take away from watching it now and for everybody you've talked to and all the drivers we interviewed, prepare yourself for next year when you hopefully get out there to the Speedway? Man, I think it's sunscreen for sure. But also, (laughs) I just think it's really cool to see how people are there. Like, I've been in some pretty crazy environments just being a sports writer, but 300,000 people, I don't think I've ever been in a facility that has 300,000 all watching, screaming, cheering, and soaking in um, a race like that or an event like that. And then it's all age groups, you know, all demographics. So that's probably what I'm most looking forward to when I get out there next year. Fingers crossed. We thought that Game 7 at TD Garden was a loud atmosphere. Nothing compared to what you would have experienced, what was experienced at IMS over the weekend. Speaking of which, around the corner, the legend himself, Mark Janes, of the IndyCar Radio Network is going to spend some time with us. We'll get his perspective on the 107th running Indianapolis 500, green flag racing, and a one-lap shootout to decide the winner, and a 19th victory for Team Penske, a record-extending win for them. We'll discuss all that with Mark James when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Joseph Newgarden takes the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd. Eddie Garrison, here with you in the DriveHubor.com studios. If you spent Memorial Day weekend the right way, you were obviously out at the Speedway, but hopefully you had a streaming device going as well. And if you weren't smart enough to do that, hopefully if you're driving around the city or at your barbecues, you were locked right in here at 93.5107.5 The Fan. And more importantly, to the IndyCar Radio Network for another just masterclass in broadcasting, the leader of which... Mark Jaynes, nice enough to take some time with us. First off, bravo, sir. Bravo. Another just doesn't matter where I was driving, where I was at in my Memorial Day party weekend. You guys were a part of it, your entire crew. It was phenomenal from start to finish. And thank you again for all that you do across the board for broadcasting, Mark. Well, the pleasure is all ours, and thank you for the kind words. We we appreciate that, and I'll be sure to pass that along to everyone. Uh, it's uh, as you can imagine, it's the the greatest gig in the world, and uh, you know we we uh, used to spend our Sundays, our race days, doing the same things that uh, that everyone was doing, and uh, I think we're all still very much connected to that. We're also connected with uh, the responsibility that we have to do our best to make people who aren't there feel like they are, and. Uh, 
we're always uh, we're always very satisfied. I think uh, uh, when 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 the day is done, and uh, I know that uh, it was a very compelling race that had plenty of storylines, and uh, I felt we did a really good job of staying on top of those. And uh, it was uh, it was an interesting finish for sure, and one for the ages. And uh, a hearty congratulations to Joseph Newgard. I mean, this is one that he has wanted for so very very long, and uh, I know he will be a deserving champion and represent the Indianapolis 500 very very well. Mark, take us through, for those that didn't get the opportunity to listen alongside, take us through that final caution and the discussion or the lead-up on the broadcast of when you found out there was going to be a red and then ultimately a green flag right after that for one lap to win this thing. How unprecedented was this type of finish in your mind? And just walk us through the broadcast booth during those final moments in the lead-up to green flag racing. Well, it is unprecedented for sure, uh, but our network director, Chris Pollock, uh, does a really good job of uh, monitoring ma- uh, you know, race control, and he feeds us information, and uh, he was pretty quick to tell us that there was a red flag coming, and then uh, once the decision was made and the teams were informed, uh, he informed us that uh, you know they were going to come off of pit road, and uh, they were essentially going to get the green-white, and they would be off and running, and we would have one lap to decide the Indianapolis 500, and so um, we all... We all settled in and uh, and got ready to, to make the call and uh, it, it's something that had never been done before. I know this. Um, it, it's not up to me uh, to make those decisions, and it's a good thing. Uh, but, you know, the, there are, are, are people charged with making those decisions. At the end of the day, I know there were those that, that were not necessarily in favor of the decision to throw the red flag so late with so few laps to go. And I know there have been similar situations in the past where the rulings have, have gone another way. Uh, but I know this. From our broadcast booth uh, in, in, in just off of turn number four in the media center, uh, when that red flag was announced, uh, there was a – uh, I think a thunderous roar of applause that went through that facility, and um, and I, I think the fans were were totally in agreement that uh, uh, that that thing should end uh, with, with given every opportunity to end uh, under green. And um, while certainly we're there for the drivers, we're there for the teams. I think we're also we're also there for the fans and for the show. And uh, I think uh, I think all in all, uh, they 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 put on a pretty good one over the last couple of laps, no doubt. Mark, what did you think of Joseph Newgarden's approach to that final lap and just the strategy that he used to obviously come out victorious? And then, as you said, talk about fans, him interacting with the fans the way that he did, <laughs> which just reminded me of probably every kid who dreams of being in that moment. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I, I would suggest that perhaps moving forward uh, that they may take a good long look at, uh, at, at at using so much of the pit lane entrance when they come off of turn four, simply because of the attenuator. And over the years, you know, Ari Leyendijk and Mark Dismore are among those who've had some horrific crashes uh, with that attenuator. And I know they made a lot of safety changes there, and that into the racetrack is is uh, certainly a lot safer. But there's also some consideration given to teams that you know are in the 33rd, the 32nd, the 34th pit box, and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, I, I think, uh, as is always the case, guys, whether it's at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or whether it's on a road and street course, uh, drivers are going to use all of the track that they dare can until they're told not to. Uh, 
Uh, so I, I think they were within the rules uh, as, as they're interpreted at this point. Uh, and if that changes, I'm sure they'll fall within those guidelines as well. But as far as the celebration, I mean, to, to be honest with you, when he first got out of the car, I thought he was simply going to emulate Elio and uh, and climb the fence. And then when he went through that hole in the fence, <laughs> I, I just uh, it was a celebration unlike anything that we had ever seen at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And uh, I, I think that uh, there were also there were all already legions of Joseph Newgarden fans, but uh, he certainly added uh, a, a few thousand more, no doubt about it, with that move. <laughs> And, uh, and 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 I commend him. And it's something that uh, you know he repeatedly said that he had always intended to do. And uh, I I thought it was really cool. And I, I think it, it, it's a moment that'll be relived uh, for for years to come, and rightfully so. Mark James, the IndyCar Radio Network, nice enough to make some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Mark Joseph mentioned this with a sigh of relief in a lot of those post-race press conferences, how much this meant to him to finally get it done, to add maybe the final crown jewel that he might have felt like he needed to a very impressive resume to this point for the 32-year-old. When you look at what he's done and just for all these drivers, what winning a Borg Warner trophy does for their career, how do you summarize or contextualize what this next step or next leap forward in New Garden's career does this win mean to him well he's no he's no longer going to be introduced as a, a multiple series champion who's yet to win the indy 500 i mean he's now indy 500 champion joseph newgarden and uh, as, as i believe what simon pagino said and, and others have said i mean it literally uh it, it gives you immortality uh, and it also changes the way that you are introduced. And, and, and as I've said a couple of times this uh, this past month on, on the show with our good friend Bob Lovell, Indiana Sports Talk, I said, listen, uh, nobody talks about Allen's or Jr. being a six-time winner at Long Beach. He's a two-time <laughs> Indy 500 champion. And, uh, but, you know, the, it, 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 it stuck in his craw as it sticks in everyone's craw. The fact that he hadn't won a 500, especially with a team that has been success, uh, successful there as Team Penske. And, uh, I, I mean, I think there's just a huge sense of relief for Joseph, and understandably so. If there was anyone over the last few years that you could put the label on, it's not a matter of of of, of if, but when. I think it's Joseph Newgarden, and I know that you know he's had occasionally some struggles there, but he's also you know had some success there. Uh, and I just think it, it further cements Joseph Newgarden as an immense talent in open wheel racing and. Uh, you know, we have the benefit guys like me and Nick Yeoman and, 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 and Jake Query and, and Michael Young. I mean, we, we have the advantage of having watched this kid come up through the road to Indy uh, in the Indy Next Series, which was known in Indy Lights at the time. And, uh, you know, uh, to, to watch his career develop and watch it unfold. I mean, go back to the days to where he thought his career, for all intents and purposes, is stalled when, uh, when uh, you know, Sarah Fisher uh, it, it, it decided to, to, to move on from her race team and, and pursue other business interests. I mean, Ed Carpenter willingly picked him up. And, uh, you know, uh, and then from there, he was offered the opportunity to race for Team Penske. And I think the rest, as they say, is history. And I think, you know, I, I remember I stopped him one time at, at, at Long Beach in the hotel uh, after a couple of years with Team Penske. And I said, uh, do you ever just kind of pinch yourself and think, can, can this all, you know, really be happening to a kid from Hendersonville, Tennessee? He said, you know, I've never not felt that way since I got to this level. He said, I'm incredibly fortunate to do what I do and uh, feel very, very fortunate. And I would imagine he feels even more fortunate today. Mark, you talked about, you know, uh, being immortal when you win the Indy 500. 
What about Roger Penske, Team Penske, 19th victory? What does it take to reinvent yourself, you know, year after year to give yourself a chance to win, you know, the biggest race in the world? Yeah, I, I don't know that uh, with them, I think it's a tried and true formula. I mean, uh, you know, obviously they've had turnover over the years and personnel, but, uh, uh, that, you know, when, whenever people have retired or, or moved on for various reasons uh, from the organizational side, uh, you know, let's face it, I mean, Roger has always had a pretty good eye for talent. And, uh, you know, and certainly that race team is in the more than capable hands of, of Tim Sendrick, its president, who, uh, by the way, deservedly so, joins uh, Tony George in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, the hallmark of Roger, and he'll be the first one to tell you, uh, I mean, he's the head of the snake, but it's the people that he surrounds himself with uh, that makes, you know, him so successful. And, you know, I, I kind of liken it a bit to a guy like uh, Mike Krzyzewski, recently retired from Duke University. I mean, I, I, I don't think motorsports as a whole looks anything at all like it did when Roger Penske first got into ownership and first came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the late 60s and then one with Mark Donahue in 1972. But the fact that he's been able to adapt and he's been able to change, I think speaks well uh, to, to Roger Penske and his organization as a whole and the people that he has surrounded himself with. I mean, to stop and think about the fact that uh, that they pulled off the double uh, in, in, in winning the Coca-Cola 600 and the Indy 500, I, I think because of the fact that the weather postponed that race by a day, I don't know that that feat has been given enough significance, but it is it is a phenomenal feat in two of the you know, top-tier motorsports uh, series in the world uh, to grab the the checkered flag in, in both of those uh, both of those races in the course of one weekend. That's amazing and might never be duplicated. If it is duplicated, it'll probably be him, I guess, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no arguments here. Mark James with us on the Fan Midday Show. Mark, lap 94, pole sitter Alex Pillow gets inadvertently rammed into by Renus VK as Renus trying to get out, out of pit row as well. How does it... Obviously very frustrating for Chip Ganassi Racing and Alex Pillow, and you can hear that from post-race, but how much does it speak to the talent of their car? And up, we lost Spark for a second. We'll get him back in just a second. But well, what really mesmerized me the most with Alex Pillow was the fact that all month long we talked about how fast that car was, and for him to be rammed into, and at least from a broadcast standpoint, the thought is his day is done, there was still conversations as he did get back out there that, well, depending on how things go, his car is still fast enough. He's climbing up the ranks. Maybe he could make some noise. Ultimately, it was not enough, but still to end up fourth when it looked like your day was done speaks to the testament of that car. Absolutely. And I think it also speaks to what we talked about last week going into the race. Sometimes you got to be lucky and sometimes you're just unlucky. I mean, if you don't get your car dinged up, maybe you, you're the one, you know, on the podium, you're the one celebrating. And so that has to be frustrating, like you said. But at the same time, it's probably motivation just to, you know, give another shot whenever you, whenever you get that chance again. But, man, I, I can't imagine the emotions of that because you want to be able to say you controlled as much as you could, you did as much as you could. But then something out of your control happens, and it's like, ah, like, what do I go from here? But I thought that, again, the mental fortitude, the car itself, the team did a good job of giving him a chance to still overcome that and be in the thick of things, you know, when it mattered most. On top of all of that, he mentioned post-race, and this from NBCSports.com, there's nothing I could have done there. Quote, it's okay when it's my fault or the team's fault because everybody makes mistakes, but when there's nothing you could have done differently, it just feels bad. It feels bad for the team. 
And again, that's not to say there was a guarantee that he was going to win this race. He, he faced a lot of adversity throughout, but the conversation was had drove to that point nearly a perfect month of May. I was say, yeah, with the way he was driving? Yeah. And to have it end, again, not of your own accord, it, it just stinks. The fact that he was able to get back out there again and end up finishing fourth, and they were still talking about when you go and watch the replay or if you listen to the broadcast live here on the IndyCar Radio Network, they were talking as the race unfolded. Here comes Alex Pillow. He's climbing up the standings a little bit. Perhaps maybe he's gonna <laughs> maybe he's going to squeak through here and make some noise. Ultimately, again, it does not happen, but it's that that's racing sometimes. You know, it, it's frustrating. It's maddening for Chip Ganassi Racing. A lot of phrasing after this race. You could use the word maddening for when you watch the post-race gala. That 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 happens, right? Everybody when they get their turn, they're announced. Here's the 21st finisher, or the 18th finisher, the 32nd finisher. It, it's tough from an emotional standpoint. You're frustrated. You want to be the winner. And for Pelot to drive as well as he did, and it end really not his fault, it, it stinks. So uh, Mark just called me. <laughs> he's sitting poolside. I saw I don't that know on if, Twitter. That was how we're going to close. Yeah, sure. yeah. He's sitting poolside. I don't know if it's at his residence or not, but he said the phone overheated and <laughs> shut off. You know what? It's actually a real thing. Oh, it happened to me at the track. It happens I understand. all the time. Yeah. yeah. So you know, all these phone companies out there charging arm and a leg for these phones. The next thing you need to do is put some coolant in that thing so it doesn't overheat and keep Mark on the line. But we can keep know. the we can keep the cars cool going two and thirty miles <laughs> exactly. an hour. But my iPhone's going to shut down. Exactly. With direct sunlight. Exactly. But I must say, I mean, poolside on, on a nice sunny oh, Tuesday. I was jealous. He had, he had the pool shot on Twitter. I long can't month hate of May. Uh, having having a little break like he deserves. No, I, I can't do it at all. Well, we didn't get obviously an opportunity to throw more roses Mark's way, but totally understand. Like I said, my my phone overheated at the track when we were out there for Carb Day. Thank you again, if Mark, if you are listening, or if not, those that aren't aware of just how special that crew is. It is a going to the race is a milestone and something whether you are a Hoosier or whether if it's not on your bucket list, it should be right going has to be a part of it. But when we talk about the importance of sports coverage and the level of just trust, consistency, and the ability to get in and out of your broadcast windows properly is tough when you're just working with a color analyst, be it TV or radio, and it's just a two-man booth. With all the moving parts that they have covering every section of the Speedway, they make it look like... It's something anybody could do, but it's not. It's incredibly difficult. They show a master class in broadcasting every year. Hats off across the board to the entire IndyCar Radio Network for taking us through another thrilling edition of the Great Spectacle in Racing. Yeah, that's it's hard, man. And I think play-by-play play in any sport is difficult. When you're moving at that speed, and then even having the awareness to let the moment breathe a little bit which is always something you probably know more about than me but not over talking or, or over analyzing or over detailing certain things and so um, special stuff from them and obviously that's one of the things where I'm sure anyone listening who's a huge sports fan can think of a moment in your life where a sports event happened and you remember the call as well mm-hmm. so the call really matters to how you um, hold on to those memories special thank you again to Mark Jaynes and the entire 
IndyCar Radio Network. You can follow him on Twitter at James Marr. You can get a nice look at the well-deserved poolside action for one <laughs> Mark Jayens after a very busy but another highly successful month of May. We're going to take a quick timeout. Still to come, we're going to talk NBA with Alex Kennedy, NBA draft action with Damian Parson, and Mike Chappell going to join us at the top of the 2 o'clock hour, Alex Kennedy, top of the 1 o'clock hour, Damian Parson, bottom of the 1 o'clock hour. So we got you covered with some NBA coverage. We have you covered as well as Colts OTAs rolling along. Mike Chappell will join us at the top of the 2 o'clock hour to get coverage there. When we come back, we'll take a brief to borrow what Mark James might be doing right now. We'll, we'll dip our toes in the water <laughs> just a bit of Game 7 from TD Garden last night. Were we right about this whole power vacuum thing in the East? We'll discuss that when we come back on The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Congratulations once again, Joseph Newgarden, winner of the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. If you went to the race, if you sat poolside, if you had a barbecue, a party, whatever the case may be, hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend. And as we touched on as well on Friday, thank you to all those that have served. Thank you for, to all those that are serving. And in general, we love the spectacle of it, but it's good to honor, remember, and appreciate those that have given so much for our country as we did yesterday on Memorial Day, and as we continue to do throughout the year. Throughout this action-packed weekend of Memorial Day weekend, though, was also mixed in a Game 7 for a trip to the NBA Finals, or as some might say, a trip to get swept by Denver with how dominant they've looked as they could have basically taken a trip to Cancun themselves uh, between the gap of sweeping the Lakers now waiting who they were going to play. James, I don't know how much we'll get into this segment, so let's start first with Game 6. Derek White's put back at the buzzer to force a Game 7. I thought Boston was going to carry that, carry the day into Game 7 and absolutely dominate the tempo, the pace, and the game last night. That decidedly did not happen. Your reaction similar or not so fast, my friend, after game six and Derek White breaking the hearts of the Heat temporarily? I don't know. I picked Miami in game seven just because I was rooting for chaos, I guess. (laughs) You know, you fight all the way to get back in it and you still go home. But I think game seven was indicative of what the Celtics have been all year. Inconsistent, unable to do things when they matter most. Um, and quite frankly, they got lucky in game six. They were up by like 10 or 12 with a few minutes to play. And then you turn your head for a second and, you know, Jimmy Butler's getting fouled on a three-pointer. You're like, what are you doing? Like they they tried everything they could to lose game six. Yeah. They survive. And I think people kept talking about how Miami will recover from it. I think Boston was had a bit of a, an emotional letdown because they were so relieved to just get to game seven. And they knew that they should have been done before that. And so they get there and they don't have enough gas to finish. And part of that was Jason Tatum twisting his ankle on the first play of the game or whatever. But at the same time, I thought Jalen Brown uh, was really bad. Career high, eight turnovers for any game he's ever played. 
he can't dribble left. And I'm not saying that to be rude. I mean, seriously, if you watch the tape, I mean, obviously he can go left and stuff like he's an NBA player. But I mean, do it to a level where he can create, get to the rim, and feel comfortable. There's a level of discomfort that he has when he goes left. And I think that he was a bit exposed yesterday. You know, when you have Jason Tatum, who had 51 two weeks ago in Game 7 to get them into the Eastern Conference Finals, and he gets injured early, he's trying to tough it out. I'll give him a pass. You know, not much of a pass because you're out there. I mean, it's Game 7, whatever. But he was clearly hurt. Jalen Brown, there was no excuse for you playing this poorly besides you just playing this poorly. He shot 16% from three in this series. I thought Caleb Martin actually had an outside shot of winning Eastern Conference Finals MVP over Jimmy Butler because of how great he played. I mean, my goodness, is that guy going to get paid this offseason? So um, I was not shocked that Boston laid an egg in Game 7. But at the same time, Jimmy, I'll ask you this. Are you paying Jalen Brown $295 million for Supermax? Like, where do they go from here? Because, I mean, you, in theory, you have to keep them together. I think they're a better team, obviously, with Jalen Brown. you got two All-NBA players. You want to keep those young guys together. But at what cost? Like, Eddie, are you spooning over $300 million for Jalen Brown? No. How's <laughs> <quick>. Nope. <laughs> I mean... I have been anti-Jalen Brown for a while because I've always seen it. He's terrible with the ball in his hands at decision-making. Like, if there's a fast break and it's a three-on-two, you might as well call it a three-on-one because he's not passing. <laughs> he's going to the rim every single time, no matter who's there. Every single time. I would trade him. You got a year Ooh, left on his contract. I would, I, would, I would see if you can get somebody that views him as the number one or views him as somebody that could be a face of a franchise, and I'd move on. Because I, that was that was this like we can call it overreaction if we want. I know we don't have enough time to dive deep in this segment. We'll get to it a little bit later in the show. But you had these conversations, not you, but the general public and the national pundits when they went down 3-0. This is true. What what really changed other than the fact that they won three straight games against a team that eventually at some point was going to come back down to earth. I don't know that I saw them losing three straight in the way they did. Probably should have closed it out in game six and, you know, that ball just not bounced right in the correct yeah. spot. But nothing about that team construction and where that team has changed. Tatum's window's not over. I'm not saying Brown's window is over, but that team is getting older and older. At some point, it's time to hit a reset button if Tatum is your franchise face and move on. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't pay him. I would move on from him. We're going to... Get a better perspective on that as Alex Kennedy going to stop by and join us. We'll get his overall takes on the NBA Finals matchup between the Nuggets and the Miami Heat. And that same question about the Boston Celtics, if it's time to move on from Jalen Brown and what the East looks like for the Pacers as they're approaching this offseason and the lead up to the NBA draft. Alex Kennedy joins us next on The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Still here in the DriveHewler.com studio. I'm James Boyd here with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison on this fine Tuesday afternoon. We have my buddy Alex Kennedy. He is the chief content officer at Basketball News, very fancy name. He's, I was telling him off the air, Alex, you got it out the mud. You've uh, been rising through the ranks for years, and I've been reading your stuff for about 10 years. I was telling them. How you doing, my friend? 
I appreciate the kind words. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making the time. You know, we saw a very unique series go down where you have history on either side, right? You got one team trying to become the first team to come back from an 0-3 deficit in the NBA. The other team that did end up winning the Miami Heat becoming the second to eighth seed to get to the finals. What were your takeaways from Game 7, particularly maybe what does Boston do with Jalen Brown now? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, it's got to be frustrating for Celtics fans. I think that's probably the worst way for the series to go down, just giving them hope and then ripping it away if you're a fan. Uh, you know, you feel like you have all this momentum and you're about to make history on your home court, and then that happens. That's got to be brutal. Um, you know, I think it's tough to kind of judge with Jason Tatum rolling his ankle, you know, early on. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, Jalen Brown was, was pretty awful throughout the entire series and, and there's no question, uh, he did not step up last night. I think you, you want to see him take over that game and, you know, really put a team on his back whenever, uh, Tatum gets hurt early. Uh, and I know we saw he became the first player in NBA history to have, uh, eight turnovers, eight missed threes and shoot under, uh, 40% in the game seven, uh, which, uh, it's a really brutal game for him. Um, you know, I think Brian Windhurst reported uh, earlier today that the Celtics are expected to um, give him an extension. So I think they're going to keep him. And I think that makes sense. You know, you don't want to overreact and, and break up this core and, um, you know, make too many changes when this team does have so much talent and, and they could be back. I and mean, we've, we've seen this team make an NBA Finals run. You know, we've seen this team go very, very deep in the playoffs multiple times now. So I think it makes it makes sense to bring this core back, um, you know, maybe try to add some pieces uh, around the core, you know, some some pieces along the edges. Uh, I, I think that makes more sense than kind of blowing it up. Um, but I understand Celtics fans being frustrated with Jalen Brown. Uh, and there's no question, you know, he struggled not only last night, but uh, in that series. So here's my question, because I know I'm on the same page as you. You probably can't break this up because they're young. They're all NBA, and the grass is not always greener. I know that for sure. But as far as an extension, do you give him the supermax? That's that's the only stipulation that maybe makes it more difficult, at least in my mind. If I'm you know Celtics ownership or management, I'm thinking to myself, how do we acquire other pieces and get ourselves to be better as a team if I'm selling out this money to this guy who is not the best player on my team? Yeah, I think that's where those conversations with Brown's camp are going to be interesting because, you know, you, you can point to this series now and, and maybe say, hey, you know, we can't give the Supermax. Uh, we need to do X, Y, Z and kind of pitch it to them that this is going to allow them to make other changes and bring in more talent and, you know, kind of sell it that way. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really tough after a series like that to – you know, sell a, a super max extension for, for a player. Um, you know, Brown was one of the guys that everyone talked about whenever the NBA's new extension rules came out and the new CBA, where you can now have uh, the, the starting salary uh, kind of jump up uh, in year one to 140% raise instead of 120% raise. You know, there's less limits on, uh, oh, you can only have one player with a super max, like things like that. Everyone thought Brown would be one of the guys that benefit most from those rules. But uh, it's possible that with some of his struggles throughout the season and then 
especially in this series, maybe there is no super supermax uh, in his future. So it'll be interesting. You know, I'm curious to see how those conversations go between the two sides because if you're Brown, you know, your argument is, you know, I- I've been a fantastic player in this league. There are teams out there that would probably give me that supermax. Um, you know, he definitely has a case for it, but you can also understand if Boston doesn't want to give it to him. Alex Kennedy of BasketballNews.com making some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Alex, on the halftime coverage on Inside the NBA, Shaq had mentioned, and I, I know he played in a wildly different era, but he mentioned that if he was one of the leaders on this team and he looked around at his guys and they were shooting 0 of 10 or whatever from beyond the arc, that he would go up to them in a timeout huddle Say, next one of you that takes the three, I'm punching you in the face. Now, obviously, that's so Shaq. That is, that is the extreme end of things. But Boston shoots 9 of 42 in Game 7 from beyond the arc, 21%. Is it possible in today's NBA with how important three-point shooting is in the association right now for a team to really have a come-together moment realize, you know what, unless we're really open maybe we shouldn't be jacking up as many triples as we did tonight. Yeah, it's tough because on on one hand, uh, you know, that's a, a perfectly reasonable take. On the other hand, you know, I think you keep thinking, hey, we've been a great shooting team all season long. We have to keep shooting because, uh, especially with Miami pulling away, that, that's what gets back in this game. Um, I don't think, you know, you're, you're never going to win a game, uh, or excuse me, extremely, extremely hard to win a playoff game whenever you're shooting 21% from three and the other team shooting 50%. But I think abandoning the three altogether is very tough in this day and age. Um, it's funny, a buddy of mine is a Celtics fan. He was uh, texting me last night. and He was like, there's no way the Celtics, on one hand, I think there's no way the Celtics can shoot under 30% for the rest of this game. It was a halftime. And he's like, but I'm terrified that they will. <laughs> and then sure enough, uh, you know, it's exactly what happened. They, they never really got it going. And I, I'm so impressed with Miami shooters, by the way. The fact that they, you know, shot 50% and so many of those threes were, you know, from role players. Or, you know, I know last night Jimmy Butler said, I, I don't really call those guys role players. I just call them my teammates. Uh, because everyone's been stepping up at different times. Uh, you know, those guys shot incredibly well. Caleb Martin, four or six from three. Duncan Robinson, two of three. You know, Gabe Vincent, two of three. You, these guys uh, were not afraid of the moment. They stepped up, and even in a game seven in a hostile environment, they, uh, you know, the, bright, the lights weren't too bright. So I was really impressed with those guys and their shooting. But uh, yeah, I don't think you can abandon the three. I think you just have to hope they start falling, and especially when you have guys like a Jason Tatum, a Jalen Brown. You know, you hope these guys can get hot eventually and that can, you know, kind of shift the game. But, yeah, a very, very frustrating performance if you're a Boston fan. Caleb Martin looked like he was the best player in the world for like three minutes there. <laughs> I was like, this guy, he's going to get paid this offseason for sure. Yep. But shifting gears, Alex, to the NBA Finals, now we know the matchup. It'll be Nuggets and Heat. You know, the Heat obviously will be – probably gas going into that first game and also going into elevation. But I know I would assume your pick and everyone's pick <laughs> would be the Nuggets. But um, is there a way for the Heat to make this interesting considering maybe they, what they can do schematically on defense with a guy like Bam who is versatile but maybe still, I don't know, just not as big to slow down Jokic if anybody can slow down Jokic because he's looking like the best player in the world. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is uh, this is really tough uh, for Miami. Um, they've had an incredible run. I mean, I don't think anyone thought they would get here, except for probably people in that building. But to go from being the eighth seed uh, and then now making the finals, and then just you, you look at how they've played. I mean, uh, this team looks totally different than what we saw during the regular season. You know, they've been 
uh, easily the, one of the best teams in, in you know over the last 45 days, and just has compl- everyone's elevated their game, and um, you know their their role players have stepped up. Jimmy Butler's been incredible. You know it's been an incredible run, but I think they're gonna have a really hard time against Denver. And I, I think you make a good point. Had they been able to close this out in four or five games, uh, you know that would have been huge for them because they would have also had uh, you know the the week plus off where they could have been. Uh, you know, resting and, and scheming and things like that. But now, you know, they come in after a game seven where they're exhausted. Uh, they go into the high altitude. Denver's been off for nine days. I, I mean, that's going to be really tough, especially, you know, Michael Malone's a really good coach. You know, he's had all that time to figure things out. Uh, you know, those guys are well rested. You know, maybe game one we see they're a bit rusty or, uh, you know, maybe that time off could impact them a bit. But I, I just think this Denver team is too good. Uh, I'll be honest, I did not pick them to go to the NBA Finals entering this postseason, but uh, I underestimated them for sure, especially their defense. They were incredible in that Sun series. Uh, they just not only have, you know, terrific star players in, in Jokic, uh, Jamal Murray, but they have the, the perfect supporting cast around those guys. Um, you know, they've done a great job of adding guys like Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, KCP. Uh, I mean, they're just so well-rounded. Uh, they can beat you on both ends of the floor. Um, I, and I don't think there's really anything you can do to to contain Jokic. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd probably say Denver in five or six. Um, you know, it's possible that Miami could steal a game or two just with that crazy shooting. Uh, especially, you know, we've seen those guys, uh, again, just they, they've been shooting the ball so well. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's going to be really tough to pull off the upset over Denver. Alex, you mentioned it, that you didn't pick Denver to make it to this point, nor did I. I don't think James did either. Um, And that's been what Michael Malone, as we made fun of him a time or two, was banging on the table about nobody talking about Denver, Denver, the lack of respect for them. And and it's it's documented like he's partially right there. It it has happened. They national media favors the bigger markets. That's the tale as old as time. But. Is our feeling, because I feel the same way, probably Denver in five or six, is our feeling of sudden confidence for this Nuggets team because it's Miami, because they're an eight seed, and because they are as just probably exhausted as anybody would be after a game seven? Or do you feel like we would be having this same conversation of absolute certainty had Boston won yesterday? Yeah, I think it'd be Denver either way. I've been so impressed with them during this postseason run. Um, You know, I I think Michael Malone has a point, too, just about how this team has kind of gone – they've flown under the radar, not only during the regular season, but but during the postseason. I know the players and Malone have, you know, complained that even when they win, uh, you know, the talk is about the other team and what they did, uh, you know, their struggles and how they lost and threw it away versus Denver actually winning. And it's been the same thing with Miami, too. I know the, the players on that side have also complained about the lack of coverage and some of the, the things that have come up, like, oh, Boston beat themselves. Or I know at one point, uh, I think it was Jalen Rose that said that the Knicks, uh, you know, lost because of the, the weather and how it affected the shooting. Oh, yeah, horrible. And yeah, so I mean, I think both teams certainly have a case. Like, I mean, every, every team is going to try to foster like an us-against-the-world mentality, but I, I think with these two teams, you actually do see it in the media coverage from time to time. You know, they've kind of flown on the radar and uh, maybe haven't gotten the credit that they deserve. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, I, I think even if it was Boston out there with, with their talent, um, I still think Denver, just with how they've looked in this postseason, I would still be picking them probably in five or six. Alex, I was going back through uh, the history of the league, and I believe 
if Nikola Jokic were to win Finals MVP, he'd be the first center to win that award since Shaq, maybe, with the Lakers, early 2000s. And so I know you've been watching this game, seeing it develop over the years. I don't think anybody saw this coming. But can you, from your perspective, just describe what you've seen from someone who I believe is making a push to be considered one of the best ever, you know, when it's all said and done? Yeah, I mean, he is such a, a fascinating player. It's so much fun watching him. Um, I, I hate that so much of the conversation around him has kind of turned into, like, you know, the MVP discourse and, and all that kind of stuff, and everyone wants to compare him to, to other players uh, because his game is so unique when you just watch him. I mean, he's he's someone that you can uh, run your offense through, and, and he's not just one of the best, like, passing big men. He's one of the best passers that I've ever seen. He can score so efficiently, and I think when you first watch him, uh, I went to—I actually went to a, uh, a Nuggets Magic game this year. I'm based in Orlando. Uh, I, I wasn't covering the game. I went with a few buddies of mine, uh, and you know they were—they were just asking, you know, how can this guy dominate? Like you watch him at first, and it just doesn't seem like he's going to take over a game. But then you look up, and he's got 30 points, 15 assists, <laughs> uh, 13 rebounds. I mean, the guy is able just to, to impact the game in so many ways. Um, you know, he's gotten better on defense even. Uh, you know, you just listen to the way his teammates talk about him, and uh, everything they do kind of runs through them uh, or through him. Uh, and his story is just, is just so incredible. You know, uh, I remember there was a story uh, that – whenever the Nuggets were, were introducing their draft picks that year, you know, they had Jamal Murray and Yusuf Nurkic who were there, and Jokic wasn't, wasn't there yet because, you know, he hadn't come overseas. But all the media just asked questions about Murray and, and Nurkic, and uh, Tim Connolly was like, don't you guys want to ask any questions about Jokic? <laughs> he was just an afterthought. I mean, to go from that uh, and kind of being this, this, uh, this project that no one really thought would turn into anything to becoming, you know, one of the best players – uh, of his generation it's been really fun to watch and yeah he just he can do it all uh he really can and uh, i think this i'm excited for him because i really think this could be you know a, a coming out party for him you know denver fans obviously know what they have in Jokic, but and i'm sure you know a, a lot of fans have paid attention to him just because of the the mvp conversation and things like that but being able to do it on a final stage and, and really put a team on your back and you know take him to a championship I think uh, that would be huge for for not only his legacy but just for maybe like his, his respect among among fans and uh, I think he can get a lot of positive attention from that so I'm excited to see what he's gonna do he's so much fun to watch Alex Kennedy with us here on the fan midday show speaking of great stories he often doesn't get enough respect in my mind but this is now the sixth NBA finals that Eric Spolstra will have guided a team to when you look at his journey, it's always when it is referenced, the, the the step from a video coordinator to eventually becoming the head coach of the team to getting criticized as, oh, it's like all great coaches have. Oh, it's really easy when you have guys like LeBron and Wade and Bosh to now, since that era has been over, going to the finals twice, once in the bubble, and now once again here as an eight seed. How do you kind of encapsulate the talent of Eric Spolster, the coach, and what he's been able to do since he got that opportunity in Miami. 
Yeah, I'm so impressed with him. You know, I think uh, there are some coaches that are good at kind of the relationship side of things and, and kind of being a player's coach. There are some that are, are good at getting the most out of players and, and, and kind of developing guys and really helping guys take that next step and break out. Um, you know, there, there are some coaches that can create a culture. Uh, when I look at – there's some coaches that are X's and O's geniuses and kind of make all the adjustments. Someone like Spo literally checks all of those boxes. I mean, he, he can do it all. Um, I, I think – you look at that culture that they've kind of created in Miami, and I know everyone's always like, oh, culture, culture, but it really is special down there. Um, you know, there's a reason they're able to get so much out of these undrafted players and uh, kind of diamonds in the rough that they find. It's really hard to do that. I mean, every organization tries every year to bring in, you know, second-round picks, undrafted players, G League guys, and get a lot out of them. And, uh, you know, they're not able to do it like Miami can. And obviously Pat Riley's played a role in that as far as creating the culture. There's a lot of people that have, you know, the strength and conditioning team. But, you know, they're known for kind of getting guys in the best shape of their life. Uh, Every year, agents are trying to call Miami to try to get their (laughs) – Alex, we still got you. Two for two, we're two for two on the day. I was about to say we're, we're, we're batting a thousand in that regard. But going back to that question, though, James, it is crazy to me because he often gets. I think we have him back, but he does. He often gets forgotten about, or he often gets just lumped in with. Well, he had the big three, and and it, it's it came easy to him. But as we have Alex back here now on the line, I mean, Alex, as you were mentioning, it's just it's. The culture that he's been able to build, even though it's overblown at times, that phrasing of the word culture, it's very real from the top down what Miami wants to be as a franchise, even in the post-Big 3 era. And the fact they're now going, regardless of how people feel about the bubble, the fact they're going again now for the second time in the last four seasons speaks to what they have built amongst that locker room down in Miami. Yeah, 100%. And I think anyone that's trying to discredit him by bringing up, you know, the talent he's had, the fact that he's able to, you know, do this with so many different iterations of this Heat roster and different Heat eras, I think says a lot. Um, you know, he came in as a young coach and people were doubting him. And there were times people were calling for Pat Riley to kind of come down from the front office and coach this team, uh, you know, like we saw whenever Stan Van Gundy uh, was there. But uh, Spoh's been able to handle it, and he's been a fantastic coach. So, yeah, I think he gets the most out of his players. He gets guys in the best shape of their life. You know, guys that, you know, we look at like a Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, Max Struess. You know, he's been able to – Haywood Highsmith. He's been able to get, get the most out of these players. And what I was saying before, uh, before the call dropped was that uh, every year whenever the draft ends, you know, agents are, are calling Miami trying to get their guys to the heat because uh, they know if their guy gets a summer league uh, opportunity there or a training camp opportunity that uh, – uh, you know, they could potentially play for Spo. He can kind of get the most out of them, and that's the best best landing spot for kind of a diamond in the rough, undrafted type player. So, yeah, you know, obviously you want to credit the players too, but what Spo's been able to do, kind of creating that culture and developing these guys, uh, it's really really impressive to watch. And he's still so young too. You know, a lot of like the top coaches in the NBA, you know, they're older, and you know, you wonder how much longer they're going to be coaching, but. Uh, Spo is still still relatively young, so I think he uh, he still has a long way to go. But uh, he already has such a strong legacy, and he's already viewed as one of the best coaches in the NBA. Alex, switching gears a little bit here to the team here in Indy. What do you think of the jump that Tyrese Halliburton made this season to being an All Star caliber player? And then also, what moves can the Pacers make 
as far as trades, possibly to bring in someone to help bolster that roster. Yeah, I, I'm so impressed with, with Tyrese Halliburton and just kind of what he's been able to do. Um, I, I did a feature on him where I got a chance to talk to him last offseason, and, and just he talked about what he was working on, how he was trying to become more aggressive as a scorer. Uh, and, and his agent and Drew Hanlon had been getting on him to shoot at least 14 times per game. So before every game, they were texting him 14, 14, pictures of 14. Uh, <laughs> and basically they wanted him to, to be more aggressive because he is just a, a naturally pass-first player. He wants to get his teammates involved. Uh, and and then this year, we are, oh, he said his goal was to be a 20-10 and 10 guy. That was his big goal in addition to becoming a first-time All-Star. And he was able to do all those things this year. You know, he became more aggressive. We saw him, uh, you know, not only dominate as a facilitator, but as a scorer. Uh, and then uh, he obviously became a 20-10 and 10 guy, and uh, he's been so much fun to watch. I think he's like the perfect guy that you'd want uh, as the face of your franchise. Uh, you know, he loves Indiana. He wants to be there. Um, you know, he's a great leader. Guys love him on and off the court. Uh, I think he can attract talent to Indiana, too, because we, we've seen when you're a great passer like that, guys want to play with you. They want to be set up. And uh, I think his unselfishness is very appealing to other players. So uh, I, I kind of love what they're, what they're building there. Um, you know, they don't have a ton of open roster spots, which is interesting. I'm wondering if potentially there's a trade we could see to kind of free up a roster spot or two if they want to get in this free agency pool. Um, you know, I know they have, like, the five draft picks, and, uh, you know, they, they don't have a lot of uh, expiring players. So, um, you know, I'm curious to see if there's a trade they could make there, uh, potentially some of the draft picks, so they could free up another roster spot or two or maybe move up in the draft. But, um, you know, I'm looking at, like, the free agents that are available, and, it's not the best class. Uh, I, was, I talked to some executives last week about this year's free agent class, and you know, some of them said it's very weak. Some of them said if you're looking for stars, it's not great. But if you want, you know, solid role players and like rotation guys, then it is pretty solid. So, you know, I also look at like maybe sign and trade opportunities. You know, there's going to be a lot of teams obviously going after guys like Cam Johnson, Ruby Hachimura, Grant Williams. Those guys are restricted free agents, but maybe someone like a Jalen Williams. Uh, a Kyle Kuzma, you know, some like the younger guys that are kind of on the same timeline as this Pacers core, those guys kind of jump out to me as uh, possibly being interesting, either with the cap space or the side and trade. Alex, I don't want to overstate what Miami has done being an eight seed and getting out of the play in first team to get out of the play in and make it all the way to the NBA finals. But do you attribute it to just a tough set of circumstances for Milwaukee or when you look at them? the Celtics, the 76ers, really the entirety of the Eastern Conference. With so many question marks there and what Miami was able to do, I'm not saying a play-in team is going to make it every year, but is there a real window of opportunity for teams like the Pacers if they're able to achieve their timeline, which is getting the playoffs next year, to make more noise? Is there a type of power vacuum available in the East, or was it really just a unfortunate set of circumstances for Milwaukee, and they'll still be the betting favorite and should be the betting favorite next year to take it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's really rare what we saw from Miami. I don't think we're going to see you know playing teams go this deep pretty often. I think uh, it was kind of the right set of circumstances. You had a team like Miami, uh, you know, with some star power. A guy like Jimmy Butler, who always elevates his game in the playoffs a great coach as we mentioned you know a supporting cast they really started playing their best basketball at the right time they got hot uh and then you had uh you know a team like boston that you know kind of play with their food and really tends to step up when they're back against the wall but all season long we had seen this team kind of 
takes certain plays off, takes games off, or isn't as consistent. Not really what you want to see from a, from a top team. Milwaukee, I think it's a bad matchup for them. We've seen Miami's caused problems for them in the past. You know, it's uh, and then you know Philly. That was a, a great series, but Miami was just playing so well, and uh, so I think it's kind of rare. We're not going to see a team like this where they have one of the best coaches in the league. You know, the star power that Miami has, kind of everyone getting hot at the right time. You know, if you're DMVA, you love this because now you can point to the play-in tournament and say, look. Uh, you can get hot, and uh, anyone can make a run. Uh, you know, it's certainly a nice uh, advertisement for the play-in tournament. Um, and I do think the Pacers could be a playoff team next year, and maybe they do challenge a team in the first round. But I don't think that we're going to see most of those play-in teams, you know, capable of going on a finals run, let's say. But I could be wrong. You know, we'll see. I think next year is going to be interesting for, for Indiana because – you know, they, they are going to be able to have a chance to add some talent, uh, you know, not only through the draft and, and potentially for agency, but, um, you know, a lot of their pieces that are younger, when you're a team like that that's that young, you, you can expect internal development from those guys. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see kind of what this Patriots team looks like next year. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, they were a team that made the play-in tournament. They might even be the seventh or eighth seed or, or higher uh, you know, so they could be one of the top teams in the playing tournament. So, yeah, I'm excited about this team. I think they're fun to watch, too. You know, I don't think they get enough national attention when people are talking about fun teams. Uh, but I, I really like watching this squad, too. Well, Alex, look, man, I really appreciate your time chatting up with us about NBA, Pacers, playoffs, finals. You take it easy, man, and I'll make sure to follow your work. Anybody out there listening, you can check out Alex Kennedy at basketballnews.com. He's got a great team over there, and like I said, he got it out the mud. So got to respect it, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take take care. Thanks, Alex. Again, that's Alex Kennedy, basketballnews.com. Jimmy, he picked Boston, not Boston, I'm sorry. They're out. <laughs> the Nuggets in six, five? It might be four. I just don't see how Miami has much of a chance to win this series. It's been a great story, but I don't know, man. It's um, something where I just think that they're in over their head a little bit. Look, I think Denver wins. I do. I know we got to go to break. I think Denver wins, so I'll close with this. If you get Tyler Hero back, and if you're able to limit Jamal Murray and have Jokic beat you, which he can do, which he absolutely can do, I think they can put up a really good fight. But ultimately, I think Denver's going to be too much. I lean more towards the six side. I think that which is, it, this Miami team feels somewhat like a team of destiny. They're not going to end up winning it, but it just it has that vibe of, look at everybody else they've slain. Why couldn't they do it to Denver? I think it goes six, but I think Denver ultimately does take it. We're going to shift towards the NFL in this next segment, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. With Damian Parson, the Draft Network, we'll check out his thoughts on Anthony Richardson and others on the Colts roster. We'll have that when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Still vibe. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I've been out in the drivehubler.com studio. I'm James Boyd here with Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook. Eddie got the tunes making me feel good on this Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> he always does. I know, right? We're going to pivot now to the NFL Got my guy, 
Damian Parson covers the NFL for the Draft Network. Also has Locked On NFL Draft podcast that he hosts. Damian, glad to have you, man. We really appreciate you coming on because, you know, down here in India, it's all about Anthony Richardson. So I guess I'll start off by saying, what are your thoughts on that guy being in a different blue now here with the Colts? <laughs> First of all, I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, sending the offer and bringing me on. Uh, man, A. a. Rich is, uh, is one of my guys, man. He was one of my guys since early last summer when I tweeted about him, you know, just kind of going through summer scouting and watching his tape in the limited time in 2021 where he was more so spot starting and stuff like that with Emory Jones uh, when Dan Mullen was the head coach at Florida. I love the fit of him with Shane Steichen in this, this, this Colts blue. You know, you think about what we saw at the combine, the, 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 the four, three, the arm tie, all of that stuff. You get to see that, at, you know, multiple, multiple times a year in that dome where he doesn't – I mean, he can throw through the, the wind and the, the natural elements, but for defenses to have to deal with that arm talent and that potential running threat on that fast track turf in Indy, uh, good luck with that for the defensive coordinators <laughs> the game plan against it. Uh, but I absolutely love the fit, and I love what uh, the Colts were able to do to, you know, bring him in, get him Josh Downs, to kind of complete that receiving core, in my opinion, because he's got a lot of trees, Jelani Woods, Mo Alley Cox, Michael uh, Pittman as well as Alec Pierce, but getting Josh Downs to be that kind of first down chain mover for him. And, you know, I always talk about building a receiver like a basketball team. Uh, I'm really excited to see what this will look like with Shane Steichen because he's got a juiced version of Jalen Hurts that he just has to mold and get ready for the season. So, Dame, obviously it's not him coming in and we just know he's going to be – and Andrew Luck and RG3, where you just know he's going to come in and it clicks and he's going to be really, really good. Obviously, his college um, tape, his his performance in college wasn't, you know, first-team All-American, things like that. So mm-hmm. where do you think the gap is for him to get to, you know, where he needs to go as far as his development? I know it's not going to happen all in one season, but, you know, he's competing against Gardner Minshew right now for the starting job and uh, maybe just, I don't know, really pump the brakes a little bit, but – what are some things that you look at and you're like, okay, this has to rise or get better if you're going to be successful in the NFL? Uh, two things, basically. More so just reps. Like, there's a young man that <laughs> yeah. wasn't exposed to a lot. And you would see that when you watch go game to game and just snap from snap, you know, from the 2022 season when you're watching the tape, you, you can tell when he's seen things for the first time. And it's like, okay, you got me, right? You know, uh, you know, you got me at one time, you know, same on me, right? Like, mm-hmm. but the next time you would see him, you see that mental growth in games where he's like, okay, all right, you're, you're in that coverage again? All right, cool. And he's making checks at the line and getting guys set, checking the protection, calling out the mic and delivering a shot on third and 15. You know what I mean? And, and getting that first down. And I think it was a play against Kentucky. They, they overloaded Blitz to the right. They, they got him where they had like a high-low kind of read corner route with the with the quick out and he took the corner route because he was sped up he just threw it out of bounds they came back a couple plays later did the exact same pressure look he saw it got a quick out for a first down to, to the opposite side of the field so it's like just that mental growth but then the mechanics his feet can get a little sloppy where that throws off his um his accuracy mm-hmm. and, it, and it's, it's touch and his ball plays he get kind of he'll get toesy in the pocket where he's up on his toes and then that takes timing away from him, even though he's got a rocket arm, but like he has to he up on his toes and comes back down to a flat 
to a flat-footed surface to then drive the throw. But getting out of the get out, getting out of that where you just you know drop back, plant, get yourself ready, step in, and he he's got the good throwing motion up top, but just sinking. And he said that at the combine, sinking his lower body to his upper body and making that one fluid motion. That's where the biggest thing for him is going to be because even if you see it correctly, if you're throwing it to the other team or you're throwing it out of bounds or 15 yards <laughs> over the receiver, it doesn't really matter, does it? Like so, I think that's the, those are the two big things for him is getting those reps and and getting that fluid full body motion as a thrower. Damian Parson, national scout for the Draft Network, taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Damian. None of us are obviously in these discussions within the coaching staff with Shane Steichen and Jim Bob Cooter in regards to where they want Anthony Richardson to be between now and week one. But the never-ending debate here is should he start, should he not start? You mentioned his ability in that one example to recognize a coverage on one particular moment in a game and then when it's shown again, come back and adjust to it. And that's ultimately life and learning in the NFL is experiencing something once and then adapting to it the next time that you see it. What would you need to see if you were within that front office from Anthony Richardson between now and week one to feel like, you know what, he doesn't need three games behind Gardner Minshew. It really is just repetition. He needs to be out there week one. Yeah, I would need to see consistency, stacking, just stacking performances, right? Like, like I talked about, snap to snap, even in practice, snap to snap in practice. Okay, yeah, this throw may not have been on target, but don't compound bad plays after bad plays. Come, you know, come back, correct it, understand what you're doing, what you've done wrong, and now compound that that bad play with three consecutive good plays. Right? I want to see that consistency for him, and just see him get better every single day. Right, watch the body language, watch the work ethic, which people I've talked to who are close to him have spoken so well of him just as a person and, and how dedicated he is to the game to get better. I sat down with one of his offensive linemen, you know, back at the senior bowl, Cyrus Torrance, and he just told me like I love this kid. Like this kid's a star. He's done things that I've never seen a quarterback do in practice and, and even in games and stuff. So for him to be able to be ready for, for week one and not have to sit a couple games behind Gardner, he's going to have to be consistent, get better, and show them that, yeah, I messed up here, but I'm not going to consistently make that same mistake because, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So if your feet aren't right, acknowledge that and say, okay, coach, that was on me. My, my feet got sloppy. I didn't do what I needed to do. I didn't torque and, get, and have a good torso turn. My shoulders weren't even, different things like that. Take accountability, show that leadership, and just get, be consistent and continue to get better. So obviously they had some other draft picks besides him, although Anthony Richardson will be written about plenty by me, more than anybody else on the team, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> looking at the other picks, Josh Downs, Juju Brents, Darius Rush, um, what stands out to you, maybe in particular about Josh Downs being um, a guy who – was unlike Anthony Richardson, highly productive in college, but um, still maybe a little bit slept on because he didn't have um, the physical gifts that Anthony Richardson has. Yeah, Josh Downs, man, I, I think the best, you know, I, I did my scouting report for him for the Draft Network, and I think I put in there, he plays basketball on turf. Like, he has a variety of releases and quick twitch movements at the top of his route at the breaking point to create natural separation. And that's one thing that Anthony Richardson didn't really have at Florida besides, I think, Ricky Pearsall, that he didn't have a lot of guys that can create separation and win. Um, and that's what Josh Downs is going to bring. Uh, he's very competitive. You know what I mean? He's, for his size, the contested catches you see him make on tape 
for a, a sub 5'11", sub 6-foot receivers is outstanding. Very impressive. But he's a good athlete, you know, good quick twitch movements, and he's going to be put into that slot role where he's going to have multiple release points or access points to turf and to grass to stress defensive bats. The main thing for him is going to be able to uh, – how does he handle the physicality of the cornerbacks in the NFL when guys get up on the last scrimmage and they're quick twitch movers as well, but they're physical press man corners. Being able to deal with that, especially those longer arm guys that can punch like a boxer from their distance and feel comfortable, can you give them a, a – can you use your hands and your feet to get free from press? And I think he can. Uh, it's all about – for him it's going to be reps – because he didn't see a ton of press coverage at, uh, in the ACC at, at North Carolina. And I will say, like, I'm I'm really excited for him at A-Rich, but that corner duo that, that, that you guys have, that you drafted with Darius Rush and Juju Brents, I'm extremely excited to see those young men, when they do finally get their starts and get themselves on the field, two tall, long-armed, really good athletes at the cornerback position, Darius Rush, I believe he's a former wide receiver, mm-hmm. and you saw it down in Mobile where he actually was running routes for the receivers. The patience, like the being one on one and the play trail technique when you don't have a safety over top, that's really that's a you know that's a very interesting choice because you don't have help. But he did that a lot of times in Mobile and was able to actually undercut and jump routes because he knows he knew before we knew that he could run sub four four. We didn't know he had that type of speed to be able to catch up. So I'm excited to see that pairing whenever they do get on the field together because that's going to give you size, athleticism, arm length, press man, as well as zone ability. Damien, what are your thoughts on Josh Downs, wide receiver coach Reggie Wayne, very, very excited about Downs being here in Indianapolis. He likes what he brings to the table, but it can be sometimes very difficult, arguably maybe the most difficult situation in terms of rookies, wide receivers trying to learn a playbook, get a feel for the you know the nuances and the aspect of a coaching staff's look and role for them. What are your expectations and your overall thoughts on Josh Downs and Indy? Um, I think my expectations for him is, is to come in and once he's on the field and in his reps, he's going to be viewed as that quick hitting option, especially you know with A-Rich whenever he's in there, to where they can design plays specifically for him to get the ball. I think about you know you think about those uh, New England Patriot offenses where you got the Dion Branches, the Julian Edelman, the, uh, the Danny Amendola's, where that quick those whip routes, those choice routes, and option routes where defensively, you know, the main thing is going to be for him and the quarterback to have the, the, the see it the same when, you, when you're facing zone coverage and things like that. I think he's going to be that quick-hitting option. He's going to be the chain mover, the guy that, you know, I think he also will become the safety blanket for young Anthony Richardson. And we talked about that on the NFL, Locked on NFL Draft podcast is him coming in with Anthony Richardson both being rookies is like is legitimately going to, to college and, or going you know, working, starting a new job. And it's like, man, we're in training together. We should be friends. You know what I mean? Like we're both <laughs> you know? And it's like that type of situation. It builds that camaraderie and that chemistry to where these guys are working together to help each other get up to speed. And that's what, you, what you're going to want. So the expectation is I think he's going to be a, a really good slot receiver for him. A rookie year, like I said, getting that, that, getting that uh, playbook down and knowing where to be, when to cut routes off, Right, it's, especially when you're you're doing one of the best ever, especially as a route runner. If he tells you run at twelve, run at twelve. Don't don't cut it off at nine. 
or, or, or 10, run it 12, you know? And that's a, that's a, a big part of that as well. So that's kind of what my expectations are for him to, to be a productive receiver as a rookie. Uh, I'm not going to say he's going to be like an offensive rookie of the year because I think all of those weapons will be fed in some way, shape, or form. But it's going to start off with big JT in the backfield, especially when Anthony Richardson does come in because you want to get the run game going, settle down your young quarterback, and he's really good on the play action. So I'm expecting this to be a a, a work in progress, but once they start to find their footing, this is going to be an exciting duel. Taking a step back to look at the ASU South as a whole, you got you know three top quarterbacks in the draft all going to the same division. When you look at you know, I'm sorry, not all three, but you got Bryce over there in Carolina as well. But Colts are going to face all of them this season. You know, who knows? By week nine, we might see Anthony Richardson versus Bryce Young in Carolina. But looking at C.J. Stroud and Will Levis specifically, how do you think they will fit into their new environments? And maybe um, for Levis in particular, just the pressure that might be off of him because he didn't go in the top ten. Yeah, I think with Levis, like it, it may have been a blessing in disguise for him. You know, his, you know, his tape was not great. Uh, there was a lot of things that you wanted to see clean up. Like he has the, you know, one thing everybody talked about. I think the Mel Kuypers of the world, everybody who, who really supported and loved Will Levis, they talked about the clean mechanics and the, how the process looks good. And I always use the analogy: I'm not a baker. My wife bakes. I can stir some stuff up. I can make it look really good. But the end process is probably not going to taste as well as you want it to be. So having those clean mechanics didn't really – it didn't move me when I watched the end result, meaning interceptions, poor, you know, poor decision-making, things of that nature. So going to Tennessee where he can legitimately sit behind Ryan Tannehill and just kind of learn and, and watch from a distance and eventually take his – you know, take the step as the starting quarterback for the future, whenever that may be. But they have to get weapons around this young man. Like, you know, they have to get some weapons around the outside of Traylon Burks because that is probably, I would say, Tennessee is maybe one of the worst supporting casts in the league for a rookie quarterback. That's why I'm, I'm glad Tannehill's there so he doesn't have to play right away because they really only have one true wide receiver that you can rely on, and that's Burks. We don't know what Kyle Phillips will be or any of these other guys. I like Chico Quanquo at tight end. So he's that situation is just a little, little murky for me. Don't start him. If you if whatever happens, let it happen. But don't start this kid right away because you don't want him to, to pick up those bad habits. Kind of that you want to get those bad habits out of him because he's somebody that we always hear like big arm quarterbacks wanting to test windows. Yeah, no, he'll test double coverage, sometimes triple coverage. He'll test it, and it's like you got to get that out of him. Like you know, it will. I get it. You have a rocket arm. Let's not make that throw. And you know, with Mike Vrabel being such a uh, tough coach, I think that's going to be good for him um, to sit and learn from Vrabel and from you know Ryan Tannehill if he decides to you know <laughs> that it's his job to help a young quarterback. Um, but when they look at like C.J. Stroud, I'm excited for him in Houston. Um, they did a they did a really good job improving that you know getting the Shaq getting Shaq Mason I think was via trade with the Buccaneers and um, getting the offensive line where they feel comfortable with it, bringing in D'Amico Ryan. But then the, the weapons, I love that addition of. of Tank Dell, who are similar to Josh Downs, mm-hmm. incredible route runner. He's just more dynamic. Like I know the NFL said he ran a four five or four four nine. That's a lie. I don't believe it. Because um, <laughs> this kid moves at a very different pace, you know, than, than than a lot of guys. And he's a really good route runner, really dynamic and explosive. But like with him and 
I think CJ can potentially wake up and, and help unlock Nico Collins, that big X receiver that they have. CJ, to me, he was the best pure passer out of this class. Throws a touch timing, anticipation, very catchable ball. And he can throw the back shoulder fade because he's used to, to bigger body receivers like Marvin Harrison Jr. and everything when he was, you know, his last year at Ohio State. So I, I'm really excited for him, and I feel good about CJ's situation. They're going to run the ball with, with, with Damian Pierce, right? Get that zone game going. There's going to be a lot of play action. Uh, you'll see some RPO stuff as well. I think, the, I think he fits what Houston wants to do. Um, and I think, Will, like I said, with Will Levis, he's just in the situation where there's a lot of building that has to happen. I don't, you know, their identity is Derrick Henry, but how long will you have Derrick Henry? That's a violent position he plays. He's got a lot of yards, a lot of tread on the tires. So to me, their identity is going to need to change eventually. And that means getting some more weapons down there in Tennessee. Damien, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I got to get the perspective because much like the Pistons, the Pacers are in a rebuild right now. I know you're a Pistons fan. They won 17 games last year. We were talking about how he wanted the Pacers to lose more games to get a better shot at Victor Wembanyama. Take us through your NBA draft lottery reaction when they end up out of the top four. I'm probably never watching the draft lottery. <laughs> uh, I was extremely hurt uh, by the fact that we had one of, if not the worst record in, in basketball, and we ended up with the fifth pick in the draft. And I'm just like, hey, man, you know what? The best way to fix this problem, you do the draft live. You do you, the same way they do the, 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 the lottery, you know, on the news where they roll the ball. Like, do that in front of me. I need to know that this was not planned, that the Spurs were going to get another generational big, and my Pistons got screwed. So, next time, just put it out in front of everybody. Roll the balls out. Let's see what happens. And, and no, no take backs and none of that other stuff but I was extremely hurt um you know I mean not even not even not missing out on, on Victor but I'm a very I'm a big fan of Brandon Miller uh from Alabama the the, the small forward mm-hmm. he need a wing as well so I was like okay you know that's cool if we don't get Victor cool I at least want to be in the top two top three and we're at five so right now I'm not really sure what direction we're going we don't even have a head coach at the moment so this is a lot going on in Detroit that no one can predict predict when these things are going to be cleared up hopefully soon Dame, I must say, you made all of Indy pretty happy right there because <laughs> they feel no sympathy for you being in the same division as the Pistons. But um, just one more quick question about you know the Colts and, and, and what they have going on. One guy who intrigues me is uh, Aditamo Adabare from Northwestern. You know, the only guy in you know draft combine history to one run sub four five at two hundred eighty pounds plus, which was insane. Ran a four four nine. What do you think of his fit? in this defensive scheme and what he can do from an explosive standpoint, even though he is a bit undersized as far as his height. Yeah. I, I think with, with, with Ado Tomoe, like you get a guy that is going to be versatile. If you want to play him at, you know, at, at defensive end in the run game, he's going to do a good job squeezing and, and leveraging gaps on the, on the, on the outside. Right. And tight ends are not going to have a lot of success blocking a guy. I think he has like 33, 34 inch arms or something like that. Very strong. Uh, actually talked to one of his teammates. And he's like, he's just such a freak in terms of physically, and, and he's like so, um, like determined and focused and motivated to be great. And what I really love is the potential of him. And I, and I said this thing either on Twitter or on the podcast. What we see with Kalaja Kansas, the only difference with him and Kalaja is Kalaja more technically refined with his hands as a pass rusher. But the upside for me is Adam Tomaway. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's more explosive. He can hold up better in the run game. 
than a Kalaja Canty. So I think about put sliding him down those third downs with a DeForest Buckner who's going to get those double teams. I feel like you're going to have a chance to really unlock this young man's full potential. Um, you know, especially once he gets his hands and their technical refinement down as a pass rusher, because he has everything else, arm length, the explosiveness, the, the power and strength. Like he's so versatile. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how he fits into this, into this defensive line scheme and this defensive line room. But I think you could play him inside and out and just really use him in the best way to, to pressure the quarterback. And I think he's going to give that to you. Dang, man, really appreciate your time. Obviously, like I said, do not feel sympathy for your Pistons <laughs> on that end. But appreciate your insight and everything that you uh, were able to provide for our show today. And we'll catch up soon. Yes, sir. Appreciate you guys. All right, again, that's Damian Parson, NFL draft you know, uh, scout for the Draft Network. He's doing this for a while, as you can say. He's rattling off names there, Jimmy, and I'm like, that's a guy who spends a lot of time watching film, unlike me. I just, uh, you know, watch about 20 guys every year to kind of know who might be sprinkled into the Colts roster or things like that. But that was uh, intriguing stuff from him, for sure. I feel bad for the idea of fanhood and the pain that's there. I don't feel bad for the end result of being Detroit. Just like I don't feel bad in any capacity whatsoever that my, like, it's almost sweeter for me the Yankees fan who's just so tired of hearing about 3-0. I, I can joke about it at this point, but to, for Boston to have been spoiled again, to have it in baseball and basketball as the first team to come back from a 3-0 deficit, it, it almost made it sweeter that they had 48 hours to think they were going to come back and win that series and ultimately just get crushed at the Garden. Oh, it was just chef's kiss. Oh, it was I saw, great. I saw a tweet where it was like, they're the first team or first city to lose yep. a Game 7 against an 8 seed in the same day. And it was NHL and NBA. And so tough sledding up there for Boston. But they've won a lot of championships, so you can't feel too sorry for them. We're going to take a quick break. Still to come, the Dean, Mike Chappell of Fox 59 and CBS 4. Chappie had a good observation about the uh, tire that hit that car at the Speedway. Unique insurance claim uh, likely on the line there. All jokes aside on that front, we'll get Chappie's thoughts on his Memorial Day weekend. Cole's OTAs in full swing. That's still to come here on the Fan Midday Show. Welcome back to the Fan Midday. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Hey show, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison behind the ones and twos. Quick NBA glance, the architect of the Golden State Warriors dynasty, President Bob Meyer, stepping away after 12 seasons with the franchise. Bottom of next hour, we'll have a larger discussion about that, about the state of the NBA right now as the NBA Finals approach, and a deeper conversation on Game 7 and what we expect to happen between Miami and Denver. But on the other side, the Dean, Mike Chappell of Fox Tonight and CBS 4, gets us our Colts fix here on The Fan. Still here in the whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Drivehublu.com studio. They haven't kicked me out yet. Hanging out with Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook. We have the Dean 
Mike Chap covers the Colts for Fox 59 on the line. Chap's been around for ever it seems like he knows a lot about a lot of things and i must ask this is might be new or new-ish to you chap we have a qb competition going on right now and how do you think that'll help or hurt uh anthony richardson's development now that he has to split snaps and, and reps with gardner Minshew. i think it's really interesting and you and i've talked about this in the pressure about how you how you balance giving the rookie as many snaps as possible because he needs them. Everybody said he needs them. Yet you've also got to keep get the other guy ready just in case. So it's not ideal, I don't think. Normally, you know, 68, 80% of the teams know who their QB is and he gets almost all the reps. Maybe not so much now, but in training camp and certainly when the season starts. But this is one where they got to sort of get them both ready. And to me, at some point, in training camp, it needs to be obvious that Richardson is far enough along to maybe get more snaps. But until you get to that point, I mean, you got you've got two guys, and you know, Ted Marchabur, the all-time coach here, way back when, twice, he said, if you've got two quarterbacks, you got no quarterbacks. That's not the situation here necessarily. But you do have to figure out how to get both guys enough reps to where each one is making the progress because as you sit here right now, you don't know who your opening day starter is. Chap, where does that separation eventually happen? Obviously, OTAs will be going on. They'll, they'll resume tomorrow. You have them again uh, all the way to the 2nd and then June 5th to the 8th. Then you have mandatory minicamp June 13th to the 15th. And then after that, you'll have your you know gap period until training camp where if at all will there be or would you anticipate separation in reps for one guy or the other none i wouldn't think until camp okay. and then and then maybe a couple of weeks i don't know i i tend to think that at the end of otas the mandatory camp in mid-june they're going to have a pretty good idea about what they've got you know, not not that this guy is going to be the star, or whatever. But I think they're going to know that boy Richardson is really coming along well. Or, gosh, he's not. I think you'll know. But I don't. I, I just maybe I'm wrong. I just don't think they go full bore at the start of camp. But again, at some point, if if he's going to be your starter, then he's got to get more reps. And you know, talking to Stephen Holder the other day, he thinks maybe maybe they start Minshew and then they have packages. For, for Richardson early on, I suppose, which I, I can understand that. But at some point, if he's ready, you have to commit to the rookie and sort of accept what's to come. Uh, but that's only if he's ready. You know, I, To me, if, if he's ready, he starts. But if he's ready means has the playbook, which is going to be simplified, more important has the protections down because you can't, He's going to make mistakes, but he can't make the mistakes because he missed a blitz pickup and somebody gets a clean shot and there's a strip shot fumble and all that. So it's a really difficult question because of all the quarterbacks and the you know the top quarterbacks in the draft, this is the one that everyone said needed the most work because what was it, 13 games and whatever the passes were in, in college. But if, if you're getting them along with – the offense with Steichen and Jim Bob Cooter 
at some point, if you think he's he he can handle it, he seems like he has to handle more, or you're just holding him back. Chap, when you look at where the team is, just build wise, you know they're not a team that's built to win. I don't think like tomorrow, but with that in mind. Should we maybe pump the brakes on Anthony Richardson? Not saying that he's, he won't be ready or he isn't capable of being you know available for week one, but if he isn't, that's not a failure, is it? Or, or how do you view no. it? No, not at all. No, but, but one thing that's interesting is if you look at that schedule, I mean, I've seen harder schedules. I just have. <laughs> You're still in the AFC South. The NFC, the NFC South is a mess. So that's a that's a winnable schedule, and I keep going back that with all the chaos and stuff that went on last year, they still should have won eight games mm-hmm. without with with nothing else changing with all all the BS went on. So, and what's crazy is probably Minshew gives you the best chance to win early, but then you're not getting the rookie ready. So it, it's there's a lot of things that go into this. I don't, you know, I was talking with someone out there the other day, and, you know, boy, wouldn't it be great to get in position for Marvin Harrison Jr.? Well, that's a top five pick again, at least. Yeah. And he's probably higher than that. So, I, you know, I, unless his team just implodes offensive line injuries, I just don't know how they – I think they win enough games that they're not top five. So it, it's a really, really interesting dynamics going into this season, how they handle it, rookie quarterback, veteran quarterback. They didn't – I keep using the word rebuild. That's probably not the right word. You know, I know Buck, the fourth Buckner field with that word. And I understand. Yeah, you don't want to hear that. But, you know, they, they, they traded Gilmore, but, but they, they kept Kelly. They kept Kenny Moore. They, they went out and signed the second-highest kicker, kicker in the league. So they're not – you know, outwardly, they're not tanking for anything. So uh, it, it's really interesting, and it, it's going to be kind of hard to, to focus on Marvin Harrison Jr. when this is a team that can win some games. Probably not enough to, to win the AFC South, but this isn't a, a god-awful team. You know, they, they were god-awful at times last year, and they still, again, they still should have won seven or eight games, maybe nine. So it, it's th- this is one of the more interesting off off seasons leading into training camp in September because a lot of there's a lot of balls in the air and it just I'm really would like to know how they they look at things internally because there's a lot of things going on with this team. The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox 9 and CBS 4 with us here on the Fan Midday show. Chap, you mentioned and building off of James' question there, you mentioned the dynamic that's present within the Colts front office and with that locker room. When when Lux hangs it up in 2019, the discussion was, well, this isn't going to be a tank year for them. The roster's too good. The roster is built to be able to make a run, win a division, make it to the playoffs. That they can't just abandon ship. They've done so much roster construction over the years to an extent even though pieces have changed since 2019, there is still a high-level amount of action on both sides of the ball where, again, you're probably too good, given how weak the schedule is combined with that, to be in the Marvin Harrison Jr. conversation. And and that's not where I'm going with this, because I, like you, view it as a far cry to think that they're guaranteed to 
be bad enough to go get Marvin Harrison Jr., but you mentioned the fact they could be good enough to maybe squeak in or, or win as many games as they should have last year. My issue is, and this is not how the front office thinks, this is not how Colts fans think, this is how my brain works. Is it better to have a year of Anthony Richardson with growth and ups and downs, knowing that he has that rookie struggle that every quarterback usually goes through and have that out of the way now than it is an extra four or five wins, maybe with Gardner Minshew and a first-round exit in the playoffs? I, I guess maybe. I understand that. If he's ready to play. Right. You just, you just don't throw him out there and say, hey, go learn. Correct, yes. So, like I say, I, I, I base it all on the fact that, that he can handle things well enough to where he's not hurting the team. And, and if he starts, he's going to hurt the team because he's a rookie. But he's not hurting himself by not knowing protections or whatever. So it, it's really, really, you know, a, a delicate balance on getting the rookie ready and yet trying to remain competitive because, again, DeForest Buckner doesn't care about 2024. Ryan Kelly doesn't. All these guys, they, you know, they, they want to win now. They're, they don't want to build for the future. You build for the future, and a lot of these guys won't be here for it. So it, you, you want to win now. You've got to get the kid ready. With Peyton Manning, they, they, they he was much, much further along. He just was. Uh, you know, and he goes three and thirteen. He lost more games as a rookie than he did in college and high school combined. But he get better. And then the next year they go thirteen and three. And, and again, I'm going to try not to compare the two because they were totally different situations. Right. But but at some level, boy, you've got to get the rookie ready to play. If you've done your work in off season and training camp, maybe he is ready. But at the same time, there's no doubt in my mind that Minshew will be more ready. He'll be more ready to start the opener than the rookie will. So what do you do? I don't know. That's why those guys get paid the big bucks and we get paid <laughs> what we get paid to criticize them. Chap, you tell them what to do. You tell them I've been here <laughs> longer than all you guys been here. Seniority matters. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Uh, but I guess they always listen to me. There you go. There you go. But I guess on a more serious note, when you look at what we were able to see, the glimpses we were able to see of uh, last week's OTAs. What else stood out to you, maybe besides um, Anthony Richardson, who we all kept our eyes on? You know, was it a guy like Kylan Granton, who seemed like he had a pretty good day? Like, just, I guess, pivoting towards him, what does his future look like to you, chap? Is this a make it or break it season for Kylan Granton, considering that they did draft another pass-catching tight end? Yeah, the, the thing with OTAs, it's almost like watching – uh, a, a, a guy's pro day because it's it's no contact and it, it, it is mm-hmm. scripted and all that. So you you would hope that the passing game looks really good because it's structured for that. But I wrote today about the tight ends and Kylan Grandson and Mo Ali Cox. There's seven guys and they'll probably keep three, maybe four, but three. So uh, it's a really a deep room and they need more other tight ends. They didn't get nearly enough out of them last year. Jelani Woods was was their most productive guy, so you know. And, and you were there last week. Will Mallory was out with a was I think it was an ankle injury, foot injury. So in Jelani Woods was out. Drew Ogletree still rehabbing. I like the group, uh, but we'll see. And th- this is a big year for Granson because sort of Will Mallory is kind of that's what he is, the same kind of a player down the field type of guy that if he has to block, well, okay, he'll try. 
that's not what his strength is. It's more of the run-and-catch guy, which is what Cranston is. So I, th- that's probably the one area, one of the areas. that's going to be really interesting how the competition pans out because, again, seven guys for three or four spots, that, that you've got to compete for that because there's if you don't compete, you're going to be left out. To go off that, Chap, how tough of a decision or process is that going to be? We had Kevin Bowen on on Carb Day, and he had alluded to the fact that, yeah, it's a very deep position room, and you're you're going to have to make decisions like you do every position, but it's arguably prior to the, the additions they made this offseason, one of the deepest tight end rooms in the National Football League. No, it doesn't make it the best, but they have a lot of options there. How tough is that going to be on cut down day or on the different cut deadlines until week one with so many interesting pieces at tight end when that's a position that often gets overlooked but can really benefit and help a rookie quarterback? Hopefully the players will help make the decisions how they play, and you hope it's really, really hard in late August. Uh, keep in mind, they signed the two guys with Caden Smith and Pharaoh Brown. Neither of those guys have played a ton and done a ton in the in the receiving game. I think Caden uh, Smith might have missed last year. I think he had a knee injury in, in 2021 and then he missed last year. So it, it, players normally help coaches make cuts. By either not playing well or playing really well, and one thing to keep in mind is it's a 53-man roster. That practice squad is like 15, 16 players, and if you don't make the, the, the you know the main roster, the, the Colts are, are are among one of the top teams that use in the practice squad. So you know a couple of these guys will end up on the practice squad, but the one thing you want to and again I mentioned in that story is. The tight ends really haven't been the factor they wanted the last few years. Now, part of that has been the passing game. Last year, a lot of it was the passing game. But you really need to get more out of your tight ends. And Shane Steichen did in Philly with Dallas Goddard and with the Chargers with Hunter Henry. So these guys will be given a chance, and it'll be up to them whether it's Moali Cox really – Having another or having a bounce back here, or Granson or Jelani Woods building or whatever, they will be given a chance to sort things out themselves. Chap, as far as what's left, you know, for this offseason, there's a lot of things going on. But what has been your impression of Shane Steichen through his first few months on the job so far? Um, you know, we joke about it in the media room sometimes. You're not going to get uh, him to leak anything that he doesn't have to to you, but um, maybe just his uh, personality and maybe how that's rubbing off on the players you've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the old thing. He's all ball. Well, yeah, he is. I mean, truly, we sit there <laughs> we sit there, and we, we ask the questions and we don't get a lot, which is fine. I mean, he leaves us wanting more, but that's fine. Just, just be a good, solid head coach. Be a great quarterback developer. And we can deal with the lack of info from the podium. We we can. We'll bitch and moan about it, but we can deal with it. And, and again, it's I think it's kind kind of obvious to me that he had a lot of say in in Anthony Richardson. That that's you know that they could have taken you know somebody else and he didn't. So I, I think this was sort of well, Shane, which one you want? You know, and this is the one he chose. To get, you know, he's able to work with these mobile guys as we saw in Philly. So, uh, so far, so good. But, boy, there's nothing. You know, what do we think of 
I think one of the biggest off-season hires was Tony Sperano Jr. But we don't know because we've not seen anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, he they, they made it very clear that they thought the problem last year was coaching because they didn't add but a couple guys, you know, a fourth-rounder was it in the draft and then a, a seventh-rounder. So they basically laid this at Chris Strasser's feet and said it was on you. Uh, so hopefully Soprano gets it together because if the offensive line doesn't get it together, we're in for another long, long season. So hopefully they know what they're doing. I, I would have hoped they would have brought in a, a veteran offensive lineman just because. But again, they must think that with a new voice in the room and new eyes to evaluate that the new coach can get things straightened out. Chap, looking nationally for a second, obviously you're on the Colts beat that that's your primary spot and we've always tell you how much we appreciate your work and enjoy you coming on and take time with us but when you look nationally with the turmoil out in Arizona that continues for a second offseason and this time it's the release of DeAndre Hopkins I'm not going to sit here and ask you if you think that the Colts are going to acquire him they, they definitely have the money to do so if they're willing to spend but that's a whole other debate of should they do it should they not do it oh by the way does DeAndre Hopkins even want to come here but when you look at contenders that would be potentially knocking on his door is there a particular spot that either A, makes the most sense for you, or B, do you still think he has enough left on those tires, just 30 years old, to be a valuable contributor to a contender? I think he's still a top receiver. I don't top 10. I'm not saying that. But, boy, Kansas City, it seems like Kansas City always is in the mix. <laughs> and, and, and Cleveland, you know, being being reunited with, yeah. with Deshaun Watson makes sense. He'll go somewhere, but I, I, coming here, I know – I, I think he, he, he's in a place where he can pick, and I think he's going to want to go somewhere that he can contend. And in all honesty, that's not here. No, because of that fact you just said, you kind of probably put the icing on the cake there, that they can't contend right now, or because there's not a spot from a fit standpoint for him? Oh, I think you can always find a fit for a great player. Right, right. I really do. <laughs> I just don't think – I don't think the Colts would do it. When, when's the last time they've done that? When's the last time they went out and got a big name? And it won't be a big ticket, I don't think, because of where we are. But when's the last time they've done that? I think when you're when you're like him, you want to go someplace that you've got a chance. And he's not looking to come here and build for two years. He wants to win now. So I, it's a bad fit for a lot of reasons. Not because he can't play. Just because it doesn't make much sense from where he is in his career and where these guys are going going into a – one or two year rebuild. Does Patrick Mahomes really need more help? Chat and I'm joking. I know. I know. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's just like you know the rich get richer and all that, and that, that's what the great teams. And that's why I say, like with a salary cap, you always can find a way to make it work. Uh, if you have to give Hopkins decent money, which maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. If if, if they want to make it work and he wants to go there, they'll make it work. Chap, we joked about it right there with Patrick Mahomes, but in a larger perspective, does that speak to why the quarterback position is so important? You know, having that position established and maybe being able to attract other players to come want to play with you on discounted deals and, you know, different things like that? Sure. It's funny. We talked to a couple of the guys in the offseason. They signed here. Uh, Samson, uh, is it Ebukam? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Matt Gay. And each one of them, you know, why'd you come here? Well, you know, contract the money. Okay, I, I love the honesty. I love the honesty. But a lot of veterans who, who've been in it a long time, 
they, 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 they prefer, you know, yes, the money's great, but they really want to try to find that championship, you know, Odell Beckham, situations like that. Mm-hmm. So I, if he has a quarterback, if he has a quarterback, he gives you a chance. And then if you've done the right things by getting the team strong around him and you're a contender, you just go where you go where you have the best chance to be, take the money aside if you can. You go where you can you can contend, contend for a championship. And again, when you're an older player and you've got tons of money, this time of the season you're not going to get the massive contract. You go where it's the best situation to win and, and to chase a ring. You really do. Jeff, what did you think of the race yesterday? And then kind of a second part to that. Old Mark Jaynes had a nice picture poolside today, able to you know put the feet up and take a breath after the month of May. Ch- Chap, is there is there a second for you to take a breath at all with the twenty four seven three sixty five NFL schedule? Well, when you guys called today, I'm I'm sitting on my my, my riding lawnmower and I'm cutting my rental property, so thank, <laughs> I need a breather. So thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and we're done here. I'll, I'll finish it up. But I, I I like the race. I'm still PO'd that it's not. Then it's blacked out here. I just think it's crazy. You know, I, I, I watched like the last half an hour, hour last night with all the red flags, but that's why I love listening to uh, the local broadcast with the Kevin Lees and and Jake Queries and all those guys, Kristen Aries. They're really, really good. But there's nothing better than watching it. I used to, when I was working at the local paper, I probably covered it 15 times and it's pretty cool, but I hate I hate to, to fight the crowd. But there's no better sporting event. There's not. Uh, so it, it, it was great theater, but just show the damn thing on TV live, please. Chap, you are preaching to the choir, my man. We'll talk to you I soon know. for sure. I'll let you get back to cutting the lawn. Fun fact: I've never cut a lawn in my life. These uh, new You're kids. Come out here and finish up with that. You do right. Unlike the track where you turn left, this one you can turn right and left. So it's pretty hard to screw it up. Got to watch out for squirrels, though. Oh, see, you there you go. See, chap, we'll catch up with you soon, man. Really appreciate your time, and I'll see you later this week. Be well, guys. Thanks, chap. You too. That is Mike Chapel, the dean, covering the Colts for Fox Fifty Nine always gracious enough to join us and also give me advice on how to keep up with my lawn care um, because I've been spoiled all my life and had to, didn't have to cut grass. So maybe a chap will teach me that as far as, you know, in addition to teaching me how to cover a beat, cover a team, how to cut grass, things like that. See, so I looked out as a kid for two reasons that, you know, my, my parents were so involved in caring about how the yard looked that I did such a bad job out of the gate. They're like, nah, no, nah, get out of here. You can't do it. Now, now as, as an adult, I've had to learn on the fly, right? Like I, like I cut the grass, you know, once, twice a week. And I don't have the luxury of the, of the nice little riding mowers for going old school with the, with the push mower. But that's how I got out of that as a kid as I was so bad at it. They're like, no, no, we need the lawn to be in pristine shape. You get out of here. So, Hey man, whatever you got to do, get out of it. You young listeners like, out there. I, I didn't punt. It wasn't like it was intentional, like we're tanking to get out of lawn care. It was I was just bad. All the young listeners out there, you tank if you can. <laughs> Don't let them tell you it builds character. It does not. <laughs> That's James Boyd. I am Jimmy Cook. Still to come, we'll hand out some bets. We'll get Eddie Garrison's wagers potentially if he has anything in the MLB slate today. I'm sure he'll want to fade me a time or two as well. But we come back, we will go full circle and put a 
cherry on top of our NBA Eastern Conference Sunday reactions to Game 7, outlook for the NBA Finals, which gets started on Thursday. Come back with us here on the Fan Midday Show. So, Jimmy. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison. Eddie, I got to ask you as a... DJ Eddie Garrison behind the ones and twos. That's a jam right yeah. there. there. There was a, uh, on Friday, I believe it was, Friday evening, Friday afternoon, due to scheduling conflicts, DJ Diesel, a.k.a. Shaquille O'Neal, had to step aside and could not perform in the snake pit. Was there, was there a call made by your agents to, to get out there and, uh, <laughs> and and fill in said spot, or, or did you not try to try to get in on that? Unfortunately, front? I was in line behind JMV. Ah, uh, that's right. I did see on on, on Twitter the JMV takeover was uh, was was trying to work its magic over there. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, again, I didn't was not a part of the snake pit. I didn't go to the race this year. I, I spent time with family. Had the broadcast on with Mark James and company and we mentioned that in our first segment of the show or second segment of the show when James was with us that they did a phenomenal job and they always do but if I was to be a part of the snake pit chaos and we talked about it in the lead up to it I've seen Shaq DJ in person before whether whether you want to say like he is as as, as hardcore or as involved as, as more like top tier DJs like Kygo or something like that is another story but just seeing just the seven foot one mass of humanity that is Shaq. Wave a towel around, get people hyped, and, and be messing with the controls. It's a great time. Disappointed that Indy didn't get to experience that. I know IMS disappointed as well, but also equally disappointed that our, our boy Eddie wasn't wasn't able to wasn't able to fill that void. I will take Eddie <laughs> over Shaq any day. I'm clipping that right there. In any sport, any activity, one on one. All of it. I could just run right between his legs. <laughs> oh man! Speaking of Shaq, inside the NBA crew on hand last night mm-hmm. for Game Seven of the NBA Finals. We already talked a little bit earlier in the show. Podcast will be up one of fan dot com, and then wherever you get your podcast, search the Fan Midday Show. We discussed a little bit our reactions to Game Six and Derek White's tipping at the buzzer to force Game Seven. For me, again. If you're a Boston fan or have Boston ties listening to this, I apologize. I don't feel bad for you in the slightest because in the 21st century, you've had the most dominant city <laughs> in all of sports. So, I, again, there's there's no real feel bad for you there. Never. Uh, never. With, with, with my Yankee ties that I know nobody cares about, but from a sports perspective, we were joking about it the whole, oh, don't let us get one type mentality <laughs> the 04 Red Sox had. It made it that much sweeter for me, just irritated by the success of the city of Boston since I've been around outside of the, you know, dominance of the Yankees. Like there, there's rivalry there for me. And because of that, it made it that much sweeter to see all the hype, all the like it was packed. Like Shaq mentioned it. It felt like the same raucous atmosphere that you would have. Peak Pacers playoffs, uh, that, that, that Kings team back in 2002 that lost to the Lakers in seven, like that type of just, we're going to go will our team to go get it. And then like a balloon just out the door 
by about halftime. Let me just say this, Jimmy and Eddie. I think that being a hater is awesome. <laughs> For reasons like this. People say, oh, you got this hateful energy. You shouldn't be a hater. The electricity you feel in your veins when the team or the player you are rooting against fails, it is amazing. Now, I'm not saying that I was out there actively rooting against the Celtics, but I did pick the Heat to win. And I thought that, like you said, the deflation that you saw on the fans' faces, the pettiness in me was like, yes, you take that, all of you fans who have been to every parade and been everywhere and joined these championships (laughs) while other cities suffer, you take that. Um, But in all seriousness, I thought that they – had a chance to do something really special. You didn't see it going that way, right? I, I didn't. Like, I thought Miami could win. I know you picked the Heat. Yeah, but not. I didn't see it like that, yeah, like a 26-point performance yeah. from Caleb Martin. Even though he'd been good all series, I, I didn't see that level of dominance on the road. Yeah, no, why, I, why didn't you, Jimmy? Come on now. <laughs> because I don't have quite the, the gall of Eric Spolster to be as confident <laughs> as he was. And he backed it up in that press conference after Game 6 saying, we put ourselves in the situation. I don't know how we're going to do it. But we're going to go down there. We're going to win game seven. And they did it in such a convincing manner that, yeah, I mean, it, it did it stink because you're looking for a great game seven. Sure. You didn't quite get that, but it was very fitting for what that series was. Yeah. And I thought that what happened was possible, just not like you said, in that fashion where they just run away with it and they just bully them into submission. But again, um, that was an opportunity that we might not see again because There's still an argument to be made that Boston was the better team, like on paper. They just couldn't execute. Like, I don't know if we're going to see a team as talented as Boston go down 0-3, come back and have a chance to really pull off what has been and still is the impossible. It has to be that type of scenario, right? Like a top one or top two seeded team against a seven or eight seed, in this case an eight seed, Mm -hmm. falling down 3-0 and be able to pick yourself up off the mat. What Boston showed, though, because I agree with you, they were probably, and I'm going to upset some NBA historians, so I'm going to be careful here with how I phrase this, but there's no doubt, in terms of the talent they had, they were one of the most talented teams to be in that situation and able to go all the way. Only four teams had done it prior to that to force a Game 7 after being down 3-0, but they showed what has been true with this sport in particular is eventually, and yes, Tatum's ankle injury plays a large part of this, I know, but eventually the mountain you're having to climb of taking four straight, it weighs on you to a point. I don't mean mentally. I mean, you could tell from Boston across the board from an offensive standpoint, even with Tatum's injury, they were gassed. Yeah, there just isn't as much randomness in basketball as there is with baseball and hockey, which we've seen these comebacks Mm -hmm. happen before. You can pencil in a guy to average 20 points a game pretty much in any series if he's a great player, but you can't pencil in a guy to score a goal every game or hit a home run every game. Like There's a lot more just randomness, luck. I mean, even in baseball, you can hit a ball really hard. It goes directly to someone who's standing right there. Sure. And then there could you know also be instances where you hit it and the guy makes an error. So there's things like that that factor in, I think, that make it a little bit easier in other sports because in basketball, there's so much scheming and just less – um, you know, to, I guess, predict because you've seen everything at that point. And so um, very cool opportunity that Boston had, but a painful one. And I was thinking hate to, to myself, it. is it, you don't hate to see it, <laughs> but is it more, a question for you guys? Is it more painful to lose in a sweep or is it more painful to lose like that where you had a chance? It's right in front of you at home 
and you don't grab it. Context is important, right? Because That's true. true. I, I say that because in Boston's case, it probably would have been worse to get swept because it's eight versus two, right? Like, like, like that, that at that point is, wow, how were they this good for so much of the season and then are getting swept by an eight seed versus, oh yeah, eventually, and this is from, again, I, I love Inside the NBA, so I often quote them because unfortunately last broadcast of the year for them last night, and I enjoy the nuggets that you're going to get from Ernie, from Kenny, from Shaq, from Chuck, but Charles had said this last night that he always says the best team always wins these series. And he doesn't necessarily disagree that the best team won this series, but the most talented team did not win. If that makes sense. And by that, I mean on paper, and it's never a paper tournament, it's never a paper series, but on paper, Miami is the more talented team. Or sorry, Boston's the more talented team between them and Miami. They were not the better team this series. They were not the better team this postseason. The That's why they're seven games, is the thought that the best team, the most rightful team is always going to win. I would probably, for me as a fan, I'd rather get swept. As a fan, I'd rather them just get demoralized versus a road win, a putback. And if I'm a Boston fan, I'm thinking we should have won that game in game seven. There's no reason we should have gotten our doors blown off, let alone lose the game on home floor with a duo that we think is our next great championship duo and not come away victorious at home in game seven. Jimmy, when the game got tight in the third quarter, Boston was running its offense through Derek White. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there watching it with my mom and my sister, and I'm thinking to myself, at some point, the Derek White experiment is going to fizzle out. Now, he played great. You gave him a chance. But he's not someone that you can jump on his back and ride to a victory in Game 7. I just didn't see that happening. And I'm like, at some point, he's going to come down to earth and then the Celtics are really going to be in trouble because no one else is doing anything. And again, this is where I was really hard on Jalen Brown because we all said that Jason Tatum was hurt. Now, that's not an excuse for the way that he's played kind of up and down throughout the playoffs. He's had some really, really high highs. You can get a pass for Game 7 without getting a pass for the entirety of the postseason. Exactly. Like, the dude was hurt. I mean, I'm watching him and it's like, no, like he cannot run. He can't plant. Everything was painful for him. So I get it. He didn't have the game that you would expect him to have. A healthy Jason Tatum, you probably pencil him in for at least 20 points in a game seven. I mean, the guy had 50 in a game, 51 in a game seven, you know, NBA record. So to see Jalen Brown, no injuries, no ailments, no excuses, quite frankly, go out there and play as poorly as he did was very disheartening. And again, it forces you to take a hard look at your franchise and decide, you know, what you want to look like going forward. And I do think that. It can be very interesting to see what Boston does because if they're like, hey, we're not giving you the Supermax, and Jalen Brown says, okay, well, someone else will, you know, get me out of here, how does that change the power structure of the East? And again, how does that help tangentially? Nice word. Thank you. Well done. (laughs) Had slid on on to say it. How does that help the Pacers? You know, I'm just saying, you know, if a, a top team like them, is not as strong as they were last season because Jalen Brown is not with them for whatever reason. Um, how does that change things for what the Pacers are thinking for next season? Obviously, another team will slot in. Could that open the door for the Pacers to make a jump, um, not only you know just into the playoffs, but do they try to make a push for a 
five, six seed, you know, where you have a chance to try to win a round. So um, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll see where that goes and, and how it unfolds when the offseason continues. We talked to Alex Kennedy about this earlier of basketballnews.com with this opportunity within the Eastern Conference. Does it really exist or does it not for the Pacers to have a next step forward in this rebuild that would put them not only in playoff position, but finally win a series and that drought, make a little noise within the playoffs. And Alex hit the nail right on the head, and this isn't what I was saying, but he mentioned that, no, I don't think that eight seeds are going to be commonplace to make the finals because if, if my memory serves me right, it's happened twice in the history of the league. The second time was just yesterday. So that's not what I meant with that. What I meant from a larger standpoint for the Pacers is that if you believe there is any level of opportunity with what Milwaukee is right now, and maybe they're the only ones where you can say, now they're pretty set with who they are. Obviously, they just hired, they fired Mike Boonholzer, and it's going to be an offseason for them where they look at what they're going to be moving forward. The reports are they're hiring Adrian Griffin, assistant coach for the Toronto Raptors. That was from Woj a couple days ago. So they have the coaching front squared away. Was it a nominally year? Was it an anomaly year, I beg your pardon, for them this year, or was it not? And if the answer is it was not, and there's really an opportunity to seize the Eastern Conference right now, I'm not saying the Pacers are going to do that next year, but you're no longer looking at, oh, we need to chase Milwaukee. You're looking at everybody top to bottom within the Eastern Conference. Philadelphia is going to have question marks. What's going to happen with James Harden? Uh, obviously, they hired Nick Nurse yesterday, but what does that look like underneath Nurse instead of Rivers? Brooklyn's going to like fade back to the pack. They obviously had enough talent to be a six seed wherever they were this year. I don't anticipate them necessarily holding that water, and if they do, more power to them, but that's not something I'm banking on. Is New York a team you could possibly leap? Where is Cleveland after they make that Donovan Mitchell trade and it looks like, wow, this is the best team they've had since LeBron? Maybe they're finally able to make a leap. The Pacers need to get back into that tier of teams where you're not a seven or eight like an Atlanta or a Miami, even though, credit to the Heat, they took advantage of the opportunities present to them this year. Mm-hmm. Eight seed is not commonplace. Four seed, five seed, maybe even a three seed spot, that is area where now you're talking about home court advantage. Now you're talking about a real opportunity to make noise next year. That's a very high bar. I wouldn't guarantee the Pacers do it, but there's opportunity, and those are the conversations that are happening amongst three, four, five, and six within the Eastern Conference right now. No reason the Pacers shouldn't also be a part of those discussions. Yeah, I'll put it like this. They're in a better spot being in the East than, they, than being in the West. <laughs> For sure. Because the West is loaded, yeah. and, and you know, if Zion gets healthy, if OKC puts it together, you know, if Victor Wiminyamba is as good as advertised, do they make a chance to, or do they have a chance to make the plan? So you're fortunate to be in the East with so much movement kind of going on, and even with Milwaukee, I think they'll be there, I think, as long as you have Giannis, honestly. Yeah, to be clear, they'll be the betting favorite. Giannis yeah. is generational talent. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, I do think that they're in a spot where, obviously, they're in win-now mode. I think you have to be when you have a guy as great mm-hmm. as Giannis and the team around him. But Middleton is, isn't getting any younger. Drew Holiday isn't getting any younger. And so, and then for Middleton in particular, he's been hurt the last few seasons, has been able to stay on the floor, and you wonder – you know, how much can you rely on him to be a number two on a championship team? And does that change things for them? And so, again, a lot of things going on, but I think the Pacers are in a good spot. It really just comes down to the draft. Please get a wing. 
You know, that's probably what you need. <laughs> or forward. Just someone, you know, to provide some size, some shooting, something along those lines. And then, obviously, trying to figure out – I know Alex touched on it a little bit. You don't have as many um, trade avenues because you have so many players on your roster right now. But does that mean you move uh, Chris Duarte or something like that to free up a roster spot, free up cap space to go get someone who can help you and better fits what you have going on right now? Eddie, when you look out east – do you see a level of opportunity? I'm not just talking next season. I mean, with where the Pacers are building, I look at teams like New York. I look at teams like Cleveland that, yes, they have established what their roster is. The Pacers are probably still a player two or away from really looking at their roster and saying, this is the build we wanted. Now let's go win. But that's what this offseason should be, is getting into that range where we're no longer just trying to get by and make the play in we're really in a position to be a threat within this conference yeah and i think when you look at specifically like those two teams that you mentioned in cleveland and new york i think they're in fascinating situations if you're the pacers because there is a clear direction that the pacers have as to who they're building around but when you look at cleveland are they building around Evan Mobley and Donovan Mitchell like what's the what's the deal there because like you look at Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell can those two pair together well with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley and does that allow them to play wings because in today's age of the NBA you need a lot of wing depth and a versatility at the wing position and they're a bigger in terms of the front court and smaller in the back court so it's it's fascinating with that team and then when you look at New York obviously are they going to continue running running it back with Julius Randle. Is Jalen Brunson a guy that you can build around long-term? Is R.J. Barrett going to improve his, his efficiency? Like There are some questions that you have around the Knicks, and I think the Pacers have a better sense of a direction when you look at them, but I wouldn't say that they can't compete with those teams in two to three years, no. And that's where your roadmap should be. Yes. Because Milwaukee will be the betting favor if they aren't already. You can check that very easily on any sports book. They'll offer you 23-24 NBA champion odds. Make sure to double-check that. I've not done that, but by the way, if you're trying to bet either Miami or Denver is an outright winner of the NBA Finals. Make sure you're in the right futures section because you could think you have that bet placed and then all of a sudden uh, double check those odds. If they're higher than you think they should be, I'll I'll give it to you straight. Nuggets are minus 360 uh, favorites favorites versus the Heat to win in the Finals. So just across the board when you're looking at that, be careful because you could easily be in the wrong section and oh man i got the nuggets at plus 600 to win it all this is no you're betting on 23 24 but (laughs) in all seriousness that is the level of range pacers i'm sure are dreaming higher i get it every franchise we're gonna contend for a championship we want to win we want to be the best team in the league yes that's clear but there is a range realistically in the next year of this rebuild where you want to take a giant leap forward. Absolutely. I mean, that's the goal. You want to be able to contend for something. And maybe it's a little bit different for the Pacers because they haven't won a championship. So you want to see steps towards just playoff success and getting back to at least what you were a decade ago with Paul George and things like that. That's James Boyd. I am Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison with us as well. We'll close things out. On a Tuesday on the Fan Midday Show with some bets across the baseball world when we return. Final time here on the Fan Midday Show with Eddie Garrison, James Boyd, I'm Jimmy Cook. Congratulations once again to Joseph Newgarden, one of the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500, just edging 
Marcus Erickson. Tip of the cap to IndyCar and IMS. Again, this is the selfish take, but it is what it is. I wanted a green flag finish. I got the green flag finish. I don't care how it happened. I didn't want it to end under caution. I was very happy to see a thrilling, thrilling close the 107th running. Eddie, correct that man. Let him know the reasoning why it shouldn't have been that way. Remind him. I don't remember you being heavily anti. I wasn't anti. I was just saying that if it's a safety hazard. He was being the parent in the room when you were being the kid who was spoiled. So I prefer the kid that wants to cause chaos and havoc. I thought you liked havoc. I don't understand. This is true. I can't lie. I was definitely the kid who caused havoc. <laughs> like I said, I'm team petty, team all of those things. But in all seriousness, it was cool to see Joseph uh, Newgarden have that experience, jump into the crowd, and really – I think he had a moment that's uniquely his own, right? We can go back to this moment and say that's what he did to celebrate it. This isn't, you know, a copying of anybody else. This isn't um, an ode to anybody else. I think it was probably um, something that he wanted to do for uh, Elio, but it kind of transformed into, hey, I'm just going to hang out with the fans and and do what, uh, you know, comes to mind here. And it was pretty special. Like Mark Jaynes mentioned, again, podcast will be up wherever you get your podcast. Search the Fan Midday Show as well as 107.5thefan.com. But yeah, I I thought he was going to pull a page out of Castro Nevis' book. I thought he was going to be Spider-Man and and climb the fence. And then you just see him just hop down like he's in a slide, you know, as you're grabbing the bar and just going down. And all of a sudden he's in the stands and just partying with the fans. He said, I'm a man of the people. Exactly. Not Spider-Man. So shout out to Joseph Newgarden. Obviously heartache for Marcus Erickson and company there. And you just hope that for the, uh, I don't know, anybody that, got to go to this race that you're at least happy with the experience it is one of if not the best day in sports hopefully james were able to get you out there soon i know man that. i was i told my family i'm like you, you guys are lucky i love you because <laughs> <laughs> I, I had plans and everything and and so i'm excited to hopefully get out there next year and i think that as a sports fan in general it's important to just have those experiences to kind of uh give you a better view honestly of what you're covering as a writer what you're experiencing as a fan all those things i think it makes you a better human if you can just get out there and enjoy those things and plus i like being around good energy and i don't think you can find better energy than what i saw at least on tv um at the indy 500 one last shout out and this is selfishly because i i picked him and i i really thought he was going to get it done you give credit to alex Pillow and speaking volumes to the type of car that he had throughout the month. Everybody knew it. That's why he was the betting favorite. That's why he was trying to become the first driver since Simon Pagino to sweep the month of May to seemingly have your day ended with, you know, Renus VK losing control in the pits and, and slamming into Pillow, and then that not be the case. And not only that, get back out there and finish fourth like any driver, if you watch the the gala last night, the celebration of the Indy 500, nobody's happy unless you win. You're always going to live with what could have been, but just tip of the cap as well, Dallas Pillow and the fact they were able to go ahead and, and finish fourth there. Real quick, I'm on the Pacers Facebook page. It said Larry Bird is back in the building serving as a consultant. So hey. he's checking out uh, some NBA draft workouts right now. So I'm sure that's exciting for the franchise to have him. I mean, he's he's one of the best basketball minds ever. Great player, coach of the year, executive of the year. I mean, that's somebody you definitely want to keep around. With the loss of Calvert Cheney, you know, going down to Bloomington, I guess Larry Bird isn't a bad, uh, you know, option to just kind of no. kind of have in your back pocket. No, not a bad play off the bench for certain. Not enough time to fully dive into that, but we'll perhaps we'll get into that a little bit more tomorrow. Let's hand out some bets to close things out.
The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. <laughs> Let's go through some plays of the day in baseball. Going to take the Toronto Blue Jays to win on the money line over the Milwaukee Brewers. Sacrifice a little bit of juice there. That at minus 150 odds on DraftKings. Going to take the New York Yankees on the money line plus 120 over the Seattle Mariners. They have a trip out west. And until it lets me down in consecutive days... We're going to continue to ride this bold strategy. Going to lay one and a half on the run line for the Atlanta Braves. They're playing who, Eddie? Who do you think they're playing with that bold strategy right there? Uh, I'm going to guess the Kansas City Royals. Good guess. Worse than that. Mm. Indianapolis Indians? <laughs> they're playing the Oakland Athletics. What do you have anything for the baseball slate today? Uh, and that New York Yankees Seattle Mariners game, I like the over low number seven. Get it without a hook there. I like that one over seven at minus one fifteen. Uh, what'd you get on the odds on the Braves, by the way? Because I don't know, one forty seems a lot on the run line. It was one thirty five when I did it. It's so not much better. But again, it's the Athletics. They're they're yeah. they're not fielding a real team. You made the Indians joke earlier that it's 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 worse than that. It's it's a disgrace. And disrespectful to Indianapolis Indians to put them in the same breath as the Oakland Athletics. Yeah, that's all I got tonight, though. Okay, James, you, you plan anything? Are you just no, waiting until the finals am, get underway? I am the, uh, I guess, the person who doesn't bet. So I like to look at you all, win or lose money, hopefully win. Appreciate but, uh, that. My money. Kind we're of not going to boo you now. It, it stays with me. It stays with me. <laughs> <It's> a smart <laughs> man. <laughs> well, we're going to have you still a couple more times throughout the week. No, that's true. I'll be here tomorrow and Thursday. That's James Boyd. You can find his work on the Athletic. Colts beat writer does a wonderful job for them. Special thanks to Mark James, Alex Kennedy, Damian Parson, Mike Chapel. Podcast up. Search the Fan Midday Show wherever you get your podcast. Right with JMV is next on the Fan.